eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Ruby Ridge. The site of an 11-day armed standoff with the former Green Beret and Aryan Nation sympathizer, Randy Weaver, his young family, and a friend named Kevin Harris on one side, and the U.S. Marshals, local law enforcement, and the FBI on the other. The Weavers and their friend Kevin were holed up in the isolated Weaver cabin in Boundary County, Idaho, about 75 miles from where I sit and record this episode in the Suck Dungeon here in Coeur d'Alene. The Weavers had long feared the power of a tyrannical government. They moved to Idaho from Iowa in part to get away from the government and away from society in general. They wanted to isolate themselves from an outside world they increasingly began to view as unjust and immoral, and then in 1992, the outside world came to them. The firefight that ensued atop this northern Idaho ridge kicked off a modern American militia movement. It has been pointed to by many as a sign that a corrupt federal government wants nothing more than to take your guns and your property. The Ruby Ridge siege is viewed by the more conspiracy-minded as blatant evidence that the new world order is real and that they have no problem killing innocent American citizens who get out of line and refuse to do what they're told. But was the standoff that simple? Was it simply government agencies wildly abusing their power and killing innocent Americans who hadn't done a damn thing wrong? No, it was not that simple. Both sides of this standoff made numerous terrible decisions. The U.S. government did not handle the Ruby Ridge siege as well as they could have. Mistakes were made. Maybe some power was abused. However, Randy Weaver was far from innocent, and he and his family also made terrible mistakes that needlessly put themselves in harm's way. This whole standoff was so incredibly avoidable. Today's story is a story of self-fulfilling prophecy. Sometimes when you worry about something coming true so much that you start basing the bulk of your life choices around preparing for how to deal with this upcoming truth, you end up making this thing come true when it otherwise wouldn't have come true. You create your own worst nightmare. If you live your life in constant fear of the government being out to get you and you get so afraid that you start making a bunch of preparations for the government to come get you, preparations that include going to meetings where people talk about overthrowing said government and then you make illegal weapons to prepare for a battle against said government, well, guess what? 
Now that government has a reason to come for you. The weavers had paranoid visions of a biblical fight for their lives against the government, and then their paranoia manifested itself into reality. Randy's 14-year-old son ended up getting shot in the back and killed. His wife was shot in the head by a sniper and killed while holding their 10-month-old baby. A federal agent was also shot and killed. There's a lot to unpack in today's Northern Idaho. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. What did the U.S. government mess up? What did the weavers mess up? And how could this entire situation have been avoided? Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Happy President's Day. Hope you have the day off. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, the Mushmouth Wonder, the Lord Suckington, the Sucktator, and well, work can wait. It's time for Time Suck. Yes, I have a cold. My voice sounds off. Uh, I'm, I'm throat coating it. Got a lot of tea, got a lot of medicine in my system, and I'm going to do my best to make this intelligible today because I, I very much care about today's topic. I care about all the topics, but today, you know, I, I have, you'll find out. I, I relate to this one in different ways uh, more than most of the topics we've done. Uh, I hope the couples who suck together, stay together, had a happy Valentine's Day. Lucifina hopes you fucked. Yeah, yeah. Hail Lucifina. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. And glory be to Triple M. When you're feeling a bit too much angst, uh, put on a little Yacht Rock and, and see if you can keep being mad. Recording in the Suck Dungeon again today in beautiful Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Again, not far from where today's story takes place. Recording with Reverend Dr. Joe H.C.J. Paisley. Thanks to all the fine folks who came out to Brooklyn and Washington, D.C. the other weekend. I didn't feel well, but you made the shows a blast. They were packed and so much fun. Hoping I had fun in Huntington Beach this past weekend. Hoping my cold broke up. Trying to stay ahead on a schedule of recording episodes the week before they drop because they're better when they're not last minute. Uh, the Toxic Thoughts Tour heads to St. Louis this week where we have a couple sold out shows already. Added a third show on Saturday. Looking forward to those shows and hoping I'll be back on the Rizzo show. I better be. I'll be sad if I'm not. Then it's off to Salt Lake City where multiple shows uh, also sold out. It's been awesome. Third show also been added on Saturday. Then it's off to Nashville, Huntsville, Alabama, Philly, Honolulu, and so many more places. Tour dates up at dancummins.tv. You can also follow me on Instagram at dancummins.comedy to get some stand-up clips, put in your feed every week, and uh, show announcements, and more and goofiness, and coolglasses.alphamail. Uh, this year's tour, so far, is the best one ever. I'm enjoying the shit out of this ride. Hail Nimrod. Uh, got some Lady Dirt Bags in the Bad Magic merch store this week at badmagicmerch.com. The Class of Hell yearbook series continues with Bell Gunnis, Catherine Knight, Jeffrey Dahmer. Logan got so creative with these. We're getting so many compliments on the merch lately out on the road. Uh, we have so much cool, funky stuff. We've got blankets, tote bags, and like just, just unique, weird, cool stuff. So proud of the store. And, and that's enough on announcements. Just burn through them. Now let's get to one of my favorite episodes of Time Suck so far. Again, this one hit really close to home. Yip, yip, yeah. Ruby Ridge is beautiful. Let's start there. If you like miles and miles of thick pine forests and wildlife like elk, moose, so many deer, black bear, maybe the occasional grizzly, mountain lions, coyotes, bald eagles, hawks, otters, beavers, so many more critters, Boundary County, Idaho is your place. If you like fishing for rainbow trout, cutthroat trout, large and smallmouth bass, brook trout, bluegill, perch, crappie, catfish, 10 other types of freshwater fish, well, Boundary County's got it. It's got almost 1,300 square miles of rugged mountains, 
pristine lakes and streams, a total population of less than 12,000 people. A lot of land, not a lot of people living on that land. The biggest town in the county seat is Bonners Ferry. Bonners Ferry has a whopping 2,500 people living in it, give or take a few. They're Idaho's most friendly town, according to bonnersferry.id.gov. They just revitalized their downtown with improved parking, which I'm guessing means they now have like an additional three or four parking spots. I can't imagine parking was a real problem before the revitalization. If I were to ask somebody, uh, you know, in Bonners Ferry who revitalized their town, instead of a company, I almost expect uh, them to say uh, like, like a single person's name. Wow, downtown looks great. Who cleaned this place up? Barb Wagoner. Took her two years, but I think she did a hell of a job. She's a one-woman wrecking crew. No one in Bounder County can work a cat in a dozer and pour some mud like Barb Wagner. Ruby Ridge is less than 20 miles from Bonners Ferry. It's the southernmost of four mountain ridges that extend east from the Bottleneck Roman Nose Mountain Range towards the Kootenai River in a lush valley in the northern Idaho Panhandle, important ancestral home of the Kootenai tribe of American Indians. Caribou Ridge lies, lies north of it and the area between them drains into Ruby Creek. Some local maps have identified Ruby Ridge as an extension of Caribou Ridge, but press reported on the Weaver standoff used the federally recognized name. As the crow flies, it's about 30 miles, about 50 kilometers south of British Columbia, Canada. A lot of the locals refer to this part of the world as God's country. It's a ridiculously beautiful part of the world with four distinct seasons. And if I talk any more uh, about it, I might end up with a price on my head for encouraging more people to move up there and ruin it. So don't move to Northern Idaho. It's fucking terrible. It's a shithole. Especially don't move there if you're Californian. Californian is about the worst four-letter word uh, that isn't a four-letter word you can say in Northern Idaho because Californians are almost single-handedly fucking up the entire real estate market, which is still extremely cheap compared to California. I mean, super expensive, so don't even try it. Don't even look. Don't look on real estate apps. Come on, save your money. Don't come, don't go there. Northern Idaho is also where Randy Weaver, the man today's tale revolves around, decided to move. He wanted to get away from society like a lot of folks in Northern Idaho, a lot of antisocial types in Northern Idaho. I, I grew up in, you know, on the edge of central and Northern Idaho. It's very much the same down where I grew up in Riggins. A lot of people who are friendly, like Bonner's Ferry's website proclaims, but that friendliness is served with an undercurrent of stay the fuck off my property. I didn't move to Northern Idaho for shindigs and hootenannies. A lot of people want to be left alone. There's a reason Randy Weaver and his family moved to Boundary County, Idaho, not Los Angeles County, California. Like, they wanted to be left alone. But you're not going to be left alone if you do things like, I don't know, ignore your court dates. America is the land of the free, but it's also a land like all other lands of laws. And if laws had been followed, there would be no tale to tell about the Ruby Ridge siege today. That being said, today's story is not as simple as just ignoring a court date. Right? There, there is a right way and a wrong way to enforce the law. A lot of people believe that the law was enforced about as wrongly as it could be in Randy Weaver's Ruby Ridge debacle. I don't know that they're entirely wrong. I don't know that I disagree, or I'm I'm sorry, I don't know that I agree with that assessment either, though. Let's get to know the star of today's show a bit, how he came to believe what he believed. His beliefs would play a very large role in his standoff with the government. Before we go into a more proper timeline where we can go over all the nitty-gritty details of the 1992 Ruby Ridge standoff. Randall Claude Randy Weaver was declared a healthy newborn baby boy on January 3rd, 1948. He was one of four children born to Clarence and Wilma Weaver, a farming couple from uh, Villisca, Iowa, a town mostly known for the Villisca Axe murders of June 10th or June 11th, 1912, when eight people were killed with an axe by an unknown assailant. I tell that tale in episode 19 of my other weekly podcast, Scared to Death, if you want to hear it. I I heard it's a good, really good story. Maybe I'm biased. 
Randy's dad, Clarence, was an agricultural supply salesman who had three daughters before Randall was born. His mother, Wilma, ran the home, and they were a deeply religious family. They were so deeply religious they had a hard time finding a local denomination who matched their strict and conservative views of fundamental Christianity, which is saying a lot when you live in a small Midwestern farm town of less than 2,000 people. The family bounced around between the evangelical, Presbyterian, and Baptist churches of the area, trying to find a preacher who got it. And actually, I say that they lived in Villisca. That's not exactly true. They lived in Grant, Iowa, a satellite town of about 200 people at the time, uh, 15 miles from Villisca. Villisca is where you'd go to school, where you'd get your groceries, where you'd go to church, went to, you know, go watch a single screen uh, or a movie at the single screen movie theater. And living in an even smaller town probably says a lot about the Weaver family. They didn't want to live in the big city of Villisca. They preferred the quieter burg of Grant. I'm speculating here for sure, but being from an area kind of like this, that is often how the story goes. Growing up in Grant, Randy hid from his sisters, played Little League baseball, and goofed off with the local farm boys. And by goofed off, I mean gave him hand jobs behind the old Anderson barn. They called him Handy Randy. The nickname of Handy Randy and the stigma that came with that nickname, you know, when you have a family who's super conservative and religious, is largely what would lead Handy Randy to move to Idaho many years later. In a small conservative Iowa town, once you are known as Handy Randy, you're always Handy Randy. And when the FBI made their siege many years later, continually taunting Weaver by calling him Handy Randy would seriously escalate the situation. For four days straight, one agent after another, day and night, were chanting non-stop through the loudspeakers. Handy, Randy, making the boys feel dandy. Handy, Randy, just have to give him candy. It was terrible. And it also never happened. It was never his nickname. There's no record of him having sexual relations of any kind with any boys or dudes. And if he did, uh, and he you know, started listening to the podcast, I imagine he stopped listening a few moments ago and is now on the phone with his lawyer. Sorry, Mr. Randy, not Handy Randy Weaver. I'm insane. <laughs> that really cracks me up because I'm an idiot. Randy was very religious and conservative. You weren't allowed to be anything other than being a really religious and conservative in the Weaver home. His father, Clarence, couldn't have been more proud of his son when he professed his faith in Jesus Christ at age 11. Years later, Clarence said of Randy, he was a good boy. He always believed in God, always did right by him. We didn't stand for anything else. Randy started working in the fields when he was 10. His dad uh, was never so proud as the day Randy stood up to a local farmer who tried to pay him less than bigger boys for the same amount of work. Randy said, I was always a little kid in school and I hated a bully. His hatred of bullies would help fuel his later standoff with the U.S. government. 1962, when Randy was 14, his father Clarence moved the family north to a gray two-story house with a square post porch on Vine Street in Jefferson, Iowa, about 50 miles from Fort Dodge. Fort Dodge is the county seat of Webster, Iowa, small city sitting along the Des Moines River home of former NBA player Nick Collison, former Iowa governor Cyrus Carpenter, and a number of other notable authors, athletes, playwrights, politicians, and more. Jefferson, Iowa, where the Weavers would actually live, is a county seat of Greene County, Iowa, about 4,000 people. George Gallup, inventor of the Gallup Pole, is from Jefferson. Doreen Wilbur, 1972 Olympic gold medalist in archery. And, uh, and not nearly as many uh, other notable people are, are from uh, Jefferson as, as are from Dutch City. The Weavers, they liked a small town. Jefferson was probably as big as they could handle, 20 times the size of Grant. Jefferson was also the perfect town for Handy Randy to escape his dark past. Why do I keep doing that? No one called him that. 
I wish they did. For, for real this time, Randy thrived in Jefferson. He was popular in school. He had a good sense of humor. He could joke around with anybody. He could, you know, he fit in. He was charming and funny. He spent a lot of time in Jefferson Tinker with his cars, working uh, the summers in the fields, having a few beers here and there with his buddies. It was like growing up on happy days. One of his friends would remember. It was Friday night football. Get the crops out of the field and wait for the next parade. And I bet he had some kick-ass malts and pancakes at a local soda fountain. I bet Jefferson was a cool, cool place to grow up. I bet it still is. Randy attended the Presbyterian Church Youth Group on in Sunday school. He earned decent grades, played baseball and football at the local high school. He graduated in 1966 and enrolled in Iowa Central Community College. It was a brand new school at the time. Driving 50 miles to class every morning. Uh, the classes were in Fort Dodge. He was a good, hardworking young man. Although most of his fellow ICC students uh, were farm kids and white like him, Fort Dodge also had a small black population. And Randy is said to have gotten along with everyone, regardless of the color of their skin. Interesting considering uh, what beliefs he would develop later about uh, race and who he would associate with later. Randall Weaver was a regular guy in Iowa who didn't cause problems for anyone. He was wiry and strong from long summers of farm work. He worked as a school bus driver while he was going to community college. He also met his future wife in Jefferson. Friends of the couple would later say they were perfect for each other, the all-American couple. But they broke up after a few months because Randy wasn't ready to settle down. Oh, handy Randy! Still had some wild oats to sow. You get it. Be gone, Lucifina. Why do you constantly tell me with cruel handy Randy jokes? Uh, when the Vietnam War began to escalate, uh, Weaver dropped out of community college and joined the U.S. Army in October of 1968. He was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina with a lot of other dudes, close quarters, where he did not do any handy-dandy Randian, if you catch my, catch my drift. Randy was trained as a combat engineer and volunteered for airborne training. Later, he passed the rigorous training required for special forces. He became a Green Beret. His dad, Clarence, couldn't have been more proud. And he shouldn't have been more proud, right? Becoming a Green Beret, it's a hell of an accomplishment. In his training, Randy learned to survive on almost nothing. He learned to make explosives, prepare fortifications. He also worked as a construction equipment operator. He was a good soldier, rose to the rank of sergeant, qualifying as an expert with the M14 rifle. He qualified as a sharpshooter with the M16 and the 45 caliber handgun. His military record was spotless. He was given a National Defense Service Medal and a parachute badge. Yet as highly trained as he was, Reaver never did what he signed up to do. He never got to go to Vietnam. There were jobs needed to be done stateside, even during that conflict, and he did what he was asked. He was, by all accounts, an excellent soldier. His experience in the military, ironically, also began to erode his faith in the U.S. government. He was raised to wave the flag as hard as any other God-fearing, apple-pie, and baseball-loving American, but the military was not Weaver thought it was going to be. He was reportedly disillusioned by the grayness and the corruption he saw on base. Once he told friends he was part of an Army intelligence drug bust on base, he noticed that all the confiscated drugs were not turned over to the authorities like they were supposed to be if you followed the law to the letter. Randy wasn't pleased. He told a superior. And when, that, and when he did tell that superior, that superior told him to mind his own business. He was treated as if he had done something wrong by reporting this. This experience did not sit well with him. He decided that, uh, you know, his, his, his fellow soldiers were bullshit patriots, that they were all in on it. In 1970, Weaver secured a temporary leave from Fort Bragg and returned to his hometown for a visit, back where things were wholesome. And he ran back into his old high school sweetheart, Vicki Jordison. He went out with Vicki Jordison almost every night when he got back. And that's how she got the nickname Sticky Vicky. Sticky Vicky and Handy Randy. No, that's not, no, that's true. God, God damn it, get out of here, Lucifina. Stop, stop staring me back to juvenile, you know, humor full of hand jobs and sticky fingy, f finger bangs. 
I'm a grown man hosting a very serious podcast. No, Randy soon gave Vicky a ring, quickly declared that they were engaged. Are you crazy? Julie asked her sister, uh, Julie Dordison. You just met this guy, but then Vicky reminded Julie that they had dated before, right? Several years earlier, but the timing wasn't right then. Now it was. And they quickly got married. A little more about that in a bit. In October 1971, following three years of duty, Randy Weaver received an honorable discharge from the Army. He was, he was ready to go. After a stint in the Army, Randy moved home, grew his curly hair out long, grew out some wicked 70s sideburns and a decent stash, and then he was walking down the aisle with Vicky. Let's learn a little bit more about Vicky. Vicky was born June 20th, 1949, a year and a half after Randy, in a house on a lake between the central Iowa towns of Fort Dodge and Colville, little town of around 600 that was once home to a number of, get ready to be shocked, coal mines. Yeah, crazy, right? Colville, Iowa used to have a lot of coal mines. It doesn't appear that they're still active, but they could be. Not a lot of web info about Colville in general right now. Uh, Vicky's father, David Jordison, was the third generation of his family to live in the family home. But when he moved his beautiful 22-year-old wife, Jeannie, into the house in 1945, they still didn't have electricity. Electricity came to the family home a little while after Vicky was born. What a different time. Can you imagine living without electricity? I can't. Uh, wouldn't be doing this. Goodbye podcast. Vicky had two younger siblings, Lanny and Julie, and a whole mess of cousins running around. Vicky was a talented and attractive child born into a family of talented and attractive kids. And according to her relatives, even amongst these other kids, she still stood out for being extra awesome. Those who knew her growing up said she could do anything. She was a smart, curious child, always reading, she could sew, cook, knit, uh, finish furniture. She could seemingly pick up things without ever, you know, bothering to study them. From the beginning, her parents said they felt like they were having conversations with a little adult. The Jordisons, like the Weavers, were also a religious family, but unlike the Weavers, they weren't all, all on the same religious page. Dad David was a devoted member of the Reformed Mormon Church. We learned about that branch back in the uh, Suck on Mormonism. And Jeannie was a Congregationalist. And on Sundays, the kids went with Dad to the local RLDS church, while Jeannie stayed home. Interesting. I feel like traditionally that usually goes the other, other way around. Not saying it should, but moms usually seem to win out over dads when it comes to things like, uh, where's the family going to church? But you know, I guess uh, I guess dad put his reorganized church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, known as Community Christ Church, now foot down. After church, the kids went to the RLDS Sunday school. Dad went to a Bible class where he talked about current events and church prophecy and then when David left, I'm guessing everyone uh, else there talked shit about his wife not coming with him to church and how sad it must be for his family and dear God, what was wrong with her and doesn't she care about her soul? Living in Iowa, Vicki witnessed the U.S. government asserting its power in a way that didn't sit well with her a few times. When she was a tiny tot, her family's favorite tree was torn down to make way for the electrification of their home. And then later, the family farm itself was put on the chopping block, strongly against her family's wishes, cut up to make way for a new highway, eminent domain. Like Randy, she didn't like bullies either. And she felt that she had seen the government behave like a bully on a few occasions. On a few occasions. Uh, Vicky did well in school, mostly getting A's. She attended the same Iowa Central Community College that Randy did after she graduated from high school in 1967. Two years later, Vicky graduated from ICCC with an associate's degree in business, took a job as a secretary at Sears back when Sears had secretaries. Then she ran back into Randall Weaver, who was not known as Handy Randy, but was known to family and friends at the time as Pete. Not sure how Randall becomes Pete, especially when your middle name is Claude. Right? He, had, he had numerous first names to pick from, and they went with Pete. How weird are nicknames, by the way? Like, did Joe Paisley ever think before he took a job here that he would ever be known to some as Micropene? 
or to horse or is it Horsecock Johnson to others? I strongly doubt it. When I was in Washington, D.C. recently, I met a guy after one of my shows who asked me to sign something for his buddy, Squishy, since Squishy couldn't make the show. And when he said that, naturally, I said, I'm sorry, did you say Squishy? He's like, yeah. And then I was like, how the hell does someone get the nickname of Squishy? And I thought the answer would be a little creepy, and it was creepier than I expected. His buddy said that when he was a kid, school janitor picked him up for a hug and then told him he felt squishy. I shit you not. And I was like, dude, you're making this up. And he's like, nope. And then other kids started calling him squishy and the name stuck and it sticks to this day. And I said, that janitor sounds creepy as fuck. And he said that that's what him and the rest of his friends all told squishy. But squishy was like, no, 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 he was super cool. Well, if you're listening to squishy, he doesn't sound cool. You might want to leave town. You might want to start a new life and never talk about that janitor again. I, holy shit, dude. I mean, good for you for embracing it. But Squishy, come on. That's worse than Handy Randy. Back to Vicky now. Regular old Vicky, not sticky Vicky. November 1971, Randy and Victoria get married at a ceremony at the First Congregational Church in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And in an attempt to impress and or appease Vicky's family, the couple arranges for two ministers to conduct the ceremony. A minister from the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a congressionalist pastor. So super nice move on Randy's part. Classy move. Bending over backwards to appease the in-laws. Stroking them both off. Fucking classic handy Randy. I, I, I'm so sorry. I know that joke's probably worn thin. It's all I can think about every time I talk about anything about him. Okay. Focus. After the wedding, Randy and Vicky move across the state to Cedar Falls, college town of around 40,000 fine Iowa folks where Randy planned to use his GI Bill loan to go to college at Northern Iowa University. Uh, Vicky was planning to work as a secretary for a while and then hopefully, uh, you know, say goodbye to her day job and be a housewife and a mother. And it is a bummer that more people can't do that anymore thanks to how much the economy in the U.S. has shifted since the 70s. Thanks to wages that have been way too stagnant compared to the cost of rent, mortgages, healthcare, higher education, and more. Tragic that more families can't survive on just one income if that's their preference, right? I wish things cost less. Uh, so great for the kids. One parent doesn't have to work can be a full-time parent and homemaker, which I do realize is a shitload of work. So shout out to all the moms and dads out there who are able to do that, especially if you love it. I'm pretty career oriented myself. I've known for years that as much as I love my kids and I do love the shit out of my son, Kyler and daughter Monroe, uh, the, the path of homemaker was not ideal for me, but I have enormous respect and admiration for homemakers. What you're able to give your kids is magical. Hope you take a lot of pride in that. I don't feel like this society values it as much as it used to. I think you should take a lot of pride in that. You're appreciated immensely by some of us. Uh, in Cedar Falls, Randy enrolls at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, to study criminal justice, ironically, in 1972. He actually wanted to become an FBI agent or join the Secret Service. Two agencies he would come into a uh, uh, yeah, standoff with later in life so he could help weed out corruption that he saw in the government. However, after only two semesters, he dropped out because the tuition was too expensive. If only it could have worked out, his life's path would have been very different. He would have followed a different trajectory, uh, trajectory odds are. After dropping out of school, Randy got way into Amway, which I don't think is a real great sign. I, I know some people have made a lot of money in that for sure pyramid scheme, but getting into Amway always, every time reeks of extreme desperation to me. Again, if it's working for you, I mean, God bless you. Uh, if you don't know what Amway is, uh, it's hand jobs. It's a pyramid scheme where the more handy randies you dole out, the more money you make off uh, the people who you talked into slanging out those handy randies. <laughs> I, uh, I'm such a child. If you don't know what Amway is, uh, Amway is short for American Way. It's based just outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I have unsuccessfully made fun of Amway many times over the years uh, to the crowd's dismay. It's an American multi-level marketing company that sells health, beauty, and home care products. 
And the more you get other people to buy, you know, products that, you know, uh, under you, the more you make. And then if someone, you, you know, you, if you're able to sign up somebody to get other people to buy products from them, you make a little money off those sales as well. And if they sign up other people under them to get other people to buy stuff, like you continue to make a, you know, increasingly smaller percentage as it goes beneath. It's a classic pyramid scheme. And Randy got real into it for a bit. He talked Vicky into selling it. He talked other family members into doing it as Amway tends to do. If you get, a, if you, you know, if you have a relative who got into Amway, it's like, dude, shut the fuck up about Amway. I get it. Fine. I'll buy your stupid vitamins if you just stop talking to me about it. But he get, you know, but, but then it doesn't go as well as he wanted it to. And after a few months, you know, when he doesn't catch on like wildfire, his love affair with Amway is over. And then in 1972, he applies for and gets a high paying job at a local John Deere tractor factory in the neighboring city of Waterloo, an industrial town about 70,000 people, butts up against Cedar Falls in eastern Iowa. And he made good money working for John Deere, a company headquartered just two hours away in Moline, Illinois. He was a young dude, he's got long hair, he's got a sweet stash, probably some fucking sick aviator shades, bell bottoms, rocking a new sports car. I feel like I'm talking about my dad right now. This is my dad in the 70s. Young, blue-collar dude, sweet stash, new Corvette. Randy had a burnt orange Corvette for a while, then a Triumph Roadster, and then a 240Z. Fuck yeah, bro. What are you driving? Mercury Cougar? Chevy Nova? Okay. Cutlass? Come on, bro. Let your chest hair out. Put on a pinky ring. Hop into a Datsun, motherfucker. Uh, In addition to his sweet Datsun 240Z. God, my neighbor had one of those growing up, and I did think, man, that's a fucking sick car. Someday I'm going to have a Datsun 240Z. Uh, uh, Randy bought, uh, you know, trucks and motorcycles. He's buying snowmobiles and fishing. Life is good. Life is good right now for the Weavers. They could have just stayed in this lane. We wouldn't be talking about them. Randy and Vicky, they're, they're still, you know, young. They, they buy a house, a well-kept rancher in Cedar Falls. They're killing it. Randy is the envy of many of the people around him. He's crushing life, smooth sailing. He's probably rocking a little bit of Jim Croce out of that sweet Dotson, blasting it off of that eight track. And it's bad, bad, Leroy Brown, baddest man in the whole damn town, badder than an old King Kong, meaner than a junkyard dog. You know, fucking hitting, flooring it off the stop sign. Come on, roll those windows down, bro. Let that smooth breeze kiss those sweet feathered banks. Uh, Weaver was also idealistic. Family members saw him as an exuberant man who threw his energy into whatever came his way. He was always going 150, you know, miles an hour in whatever direction he was heading whether it was Amway, whether it was sports cars, or his new obsession in the mid-70s, silver and precious metals. Yep. Randy got way into precious metals in the mid-70s. And again, I swear, I, this, this, so many times during this suck, I'm like, am I talking about my dad or am I talking about Randy Weaver? Uh, Randy uh, believed that the dollar would soon become devalued since it wasn't backed by gold standard and precious metals were going to be the only way for people to survive. The U.S. effectively abandoned the gold standard in 1933 and then President Nixon completely severed the link between the dollar and gold in 1971, uh, part of what was called the Nixon shock. Way too complicated to try and explain here. Uh, my dad used to talk about investing in precious metals growing up. He talked about the value of the dollar plummeting due to not being backed by gold. Right? Has that happened? Uh, this is a good excuse for me to look into this. I mean, my dad got so into this, he was literally hiding gold dust in the walls of the house at one point. Uh, if you invested $1,000 in the market in 1971, for example, for even easy numbers. Uh, if you invested in the Dow Jones, like if you got yourself a piece of an index fund and just rode the general economy of the US, um, you'd have almost 21,000, or I'm sorry, you'd have roughly $21,168 today, according to online calculators. Like if you didn't touch any of the money and if you just reinvested the dividends. 
if you invested a thousand dollars in gold in 1971, uh, or sorry, 73, 73, 73, I changed it and I forgot to change one of my notes. So just for accuracy, I'm talking about 1973 through 2020. So economy, 1000 equals 21,168 gold in 73, uh, equals a thousand dollars equals $3,000 37, uh, today. So very different. So gold would be, it would be a good investment, but not even nearly as good as betting on the overall economy, which is kind of like betting on the dollar. All the paranoia of the economy collapsing because the dollar isn't backed by a precious metal has thus far been completely unjustified. And I hope my dad doesn't listen to this episode because, uh, you know, that knowledge will only make him super duper sad at this point. For the rest of you, just know that historically over the long run, betting on the overall strength of the U.S. economy has been a very good investment. As the price of silver, I know we're talking about gold and silver here, as the price of silver began to climb in the 70s, Randy gave silver medallions and coins out as gifts, talked family members into investing heavily. This is super unfortunate because in the late 80s, the price of silver collapsed. Whoops. The price of silver per ounce reached a high of almost $118 in 1980. By 93, it had fallen to less than $7 an ounce. Oh, well. Randy and Vicky stopped caring about the price of silver. They had instead uh, begun to focus on something that has never helped out a single person's life ever, despite millions and millions of people being obsessed with it over the last couple millennia. Doomsday prophecy. Yay, doomsday. Yes, the Weavers got real into worrying about the imminent end of the world, the second coming. The couple began to harbor some pretty diehard fundamentalist beliefs in the late 70s. And those beliefs just would harden over the next, uh, you know, decade and a half. Vicky had always been religious, but now she began to study the Bible uh, religiously, pun not intended. Uh, she, she began to really study it. She grew positive that she was being led to study it because God wanted her to know that the apocalypse was imminent, right? Here we go again. When has this mentality worked out for a single fucking person ever? Thinking the world is about to end, making life decisions based on that end has literally never worked out for anyone. And this, this new mentality of the Weavers feels very connected to the early obsession uh, with investing in silver because precious metals are going to hold on to their value over the dollar because the economy is going to collapse, right? The government's falling apart. The world's falling apart. Everything's falling apart, this mentality. The military is morally bankrupt. Everything's bad. Starting to get a real good picture of the Weavers here, and it reminds me of some of my dad's friends around Riggins, Idaho in the mid and late 90s. Everything's corrupt. Everything's going to shit. Right? Better prepare for the, for the end of the world. Thank God the world's going to end. It's such a terrible place. In 1978, the Weaver family is introduced to a book that would help ruin their lives uh, called the, the Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey and C.C. Carlson. Uh, the book was very popular at the time among so-called truth seekers with backgrounds like the Weavers. It was written almost like a long letter directly to readers, you know, like Randy and Vicky, stopping occasionally to ask if they were getting it, if all the pieces were finally starting to come together. The book introduced thousands of people to doomsday interpretations of Old Testament prophecies at a time when the country as a whole was in the middle of a born-again movement. The huge bestseller convinced many that they were living in the end times. In this book, I'm attempting to step aside and let the prophets speak, Lindsay and uh, Cece wrote. If my readers care to listen, they are given the freedom to accept or reject the conclusions. Well, the book ascribed modern definitions to Old and New Testament words. For instance, Gog, the evil empire spoken of in Ezekiel, was for sure the Soviet Union now. And the ten horns of the beast from Revelations described, obviously, open your eyes, sheeple, the ten nations of the common market of Europe. All the signs are right there hiding in plain sight. The book showed how biblical prophecy could be used to predict an upcoming Arab-Israeli war that would definitely trigger 
a nuclear holocaust between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and for sure bring about Armageddon. And there was like a 99.999% chance that all of this was definitely going to happen no later than 1989, the 80s. That was it. The world would go on no further. And again, I feel like I'm talking about my dad. My dad's father, my grandfather, was a Pentecostal minister who got real into this exact type of shit. I'm, I'm positive he was very familiar with Hal Lindsey. And he convinced my dad growing up that the world was definitely going to end in the 80s. And my dad says that was the, one of the main reasons he did not bother going to college. What was the point? Your bachelor's or master's degree wasn't going to be worth anything, you know, when God and his minions began battling the devil on a, an apocalyptic, you know, uh, plain field of earth, right? It's just going to be a big nightmare, so why bother? And what has this Hal Lindsey piece of shit been up to since the 1970s still living? Still living, despite constantly talking about the world being uh, about to end any second. Still making uh, plenty of money, selling more books. The nerve of this douchebag telling everyone the world's going to end, getting all kinds of people terrified, people who then don't properly plan for the future because there won't be one. And then, of course, the world does not end. And the finances of a lot of people who thought it was going to end are totally fucked up. Like, you're not exactly maxing out your IRA or your 401k or focusing on buying investment properties if you think the world's going to end, right? But dickheads like Hal Lindsey, they end up doing just fine when their prophecies fail to come to fruition, right? After their predictions do not come to pass, they just sell more books about how the world is going to end now. It's infuriating. I hate people like Hal Lindsey. Hal is also the author and popular uh, of the popular Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. That was a big hit in 1972, Fun book about how a uh, new age spiritualism was for sure satanic. Watch out, watch out for that hippie trying to sell you crystals. That's the devil. He's put down the pitchfork and now he's picked up some Zeppelin records. Uh, Hal also wrote the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, first published in 1982. Uh, There's a New World Coming, published in 1984. And Satan, You Can Suck My Cock, published sometime last year. Uh, JK. Uh, he did write The Final Battle, published in 1995. Uh, I wonder if that book has an intro that is just a huge apology for convincing everyone the world was going to end, uh, you know, many years earlier. He published Apocalypse Code, 1997, Planet Earth, the final chapter. I mean, you get you get the picture here, 1998. He published many other stupid, useful, uh, useless, harmful books. And he's still around today. He's still a fire and brimstone dickhead, still talking about the world ending. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'd like to take a few minutes to shit all over his ignorant, spiteful, Harmful beliefs in today's idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Uh, for today's comments, I chose posts from underneath a video published less than a year ago on Hal Lindsey's own YouTube channel. He's up there in years, but he's still kicking around, putting out messages up there uh, out on the YouTubes. This was published on March 14th, 2019. It's titled Hal Lindsey Report Update and Armageddon, King of the North. Of course, this video has Armageddon in the title. Dude stays on brand. Uh, it's Hal saying the same stupid shit he's always been saying his entire fucking worthless life, that the world is a den of sin, God is not happy about it, uh, the signs of the end times are all around us, Jesus is coming back any second, and I'm gonna say some hateful stuff, but if you stick around until the end of the segment, you'll see it comes from a place of love, honestly, especially uh, a place of love for Christians. User Rob Cernek posts, How Lindsay, stay strong. Love your godly counsel. I read late great planet Earth 1980s countdown to Armageddon. You are a biblical genius. And you and use and used of God. 
to give, I don't know what he's trying to say there. It's very poorly written. But he says, you're a biblical genius and you give people hope in scary times. And then he says some stuff that makes no sense, gibberish. God bless you. Uh, how is Hal a genius, Rob? He thought the 80s were the countdown to Armageddon and he was fucking way off. That's the opposite of genius. He's 30 years late in counting. The book wasn't titled The Countdown to Armageddon. It was titled The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. And you think he's a genius? Okay. Another user with an account name of Dr. Keith Conkle, End Times Bible Prophecy, posts, uh, of course, Jesus is coming soon. All caps and about, I don't know, 15 exclamation points. How soon, Dr. Keith? 1980s soon? Nice channel name, by the way. Man, ideas are like viruses. They infect and they spread. I'm guessing Hal is the guy who infected Dr. Keith and now who knows how many others Keith has infected. I checked out Dr. Keith's uh, YouTube channel, did some Googling, even found his Facebook profile and uh, no mention of what he has a doctorate in. I am strongly assuming, if he indeed does have a doctorate, it was given to him via a non-accredited online institution. Gonna go out on a limb and say it didn't come from seven plus years of rigorous academic study at a brick and mortar institution. Guessing it came from a place that gets a little cavalier with their use of the term doctor. Uh, user Andrew uh, Zicano doesn't care from some disrespect he finds in the comment thread uh, coming towards Hal that, that I did not find myself. But he posts, for you that disrespected this man of God, I feel very sad how confused you are. Hopefully the Lord changes you because he has brought many to Christ Jesus. Andrew, you seem like a nice guy. Why are you wasting your time defending this jackass? There's a lot of great Christian ministers out there. Go and find one of those. Defend them. Defend their message of love and forgiveness and of doing your best to live a righteous life while understanding that you're still prone to suffering from the human condition, but that that's okay because God still has love for you. Go find the dude preaching about that. Get away from Hal Lindsey. User Cynthia writes, Dr. Lindsey, my son is gay. He's an atheist also. He says the Bible isn't true. He was raised better than that. I don't know what to do. He's an intelligent man. He refuses to hear anything about God. Maybe you have some answers for me, right? Uh, and yes, uh, uh, technically Hal is also a doctor. If you caught that, uh, Dr. Lindsay there. In 1994, he earned the doctorate or, or his doctorate of theology from the California Graduate School of Theology, which is now known as Haven University. It's a real place, but if you got a doctorate from them, uh, you're not a real doctor. Their website lists 10 faculty members, roughly, total. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. Pretending that you're a doctor devalues the title real doctors work so hard to attain. At Haven U, you're going to study one interpretation of the Bible uh, from guessing about, I don't know, six months. Not saying that's super easy, but it's not the same as having a PhD in mathematics or botany or medicine or English lit or almost anything at all. Your doctorate should have an asterisk behind it. It's like having a doctorate in cryptozoology or ghosts or anything else you can't scientifically prove is real. And I'm not saying God isn't real. I'm saying you can't prove it in the same way that you can prove like limestone is real or that horses are real. You can study geology scientifically. You can study veterinarian medicine in a different way than theology. It's just a pet peeve. Uh, Cynthia, please stop being a shitty mom, right? Love your son and hope that if God exists, he'll understand. It's either that or judge him for the rest of his or your life. Increase the obvious tension between the two of you and deprive him of a mother's unconditional love. Is that what you want? You're not going to convert him to heterosexuality. It doesn't work like that. Let the dream die. Science has proven over and over again that homosexuality is not a choice. So pull your head out of the dark ages and let him believe what he wants to believe. 
You can go to church. He can go to Starbucks or the gym. And then you two can meet up afterwards for a nice mother-son brunch where he can talk to you about his dating life. And you can try not to think about where your baby boy is putting his dick. All right? Hal does not have answers for you. Stop asking him, uh, Cynthia. He should have lost all his credibility on January 1st, 1990, or at the latest, January 1st, 1991, if you're one of those really anal retentive nitpickers who refused to acknowledge 1990 as being part of the 90s, like almost everyone else. Uh, user Dwayne Williams needs to spend less time watching Hal, more time studying history. He writes, as a society, we're becoming more violent by the day. Anyone we disagree with, it's almost like we'd be willing to kill them because of their opinion, absolutely no love of God, or for our fellow man, only hate. Three words for you, Dwayne. Vlad the Impaler. Things are a lot better than they used to be. Things were way fucking more uh, terrible back in Vlad's day, back in the 15th century. Uh, way more violent, to use your word. Want a more recent example of a more violent time? Uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, let's go more recent. Pol Pot. Khmer Rouge. If you think that, you know, God is coming back soon because things are just so especially sinful and violent and terrible now, you don't know fuck all about history. You're making a nonsensical, ignorant argument. Okay, two more. Uh, user Mr. Wisdom, uh, so you know this guy is going to be super smart, uh, posts, yes, I agree that people have become more ignorant. I've seen so much stupidity these last couple of months that would leave you speechless. We need Jesus so badly. Let's keep on praying and worshiping our King Jesus who is coming back soon. The fucking irony. You're condemning ignorance by agreeing with Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey is the king of ignorance. He rants and rants about how the world has never been more evil because he's apparently oblivious to history and he's literally made a career out of making false predictions. God, last one. User Mark Peden leaves the comment, why would a man want to become a woman and vice versa? I'm glad I'm not around any of this nonsense. And in the context of this comment thread, this is written to me in an obvious tone of, oh my God, things have never been more perverse and sexually immoral like they are now. And again, it's a nonsense argument. It's not true. Even if it was immoral to be transgender, which I do not believe it to be, you would still be wrong. You would still, again, fail to understand history, right? Think about uh, the Roman Empire, Mark Peden. Let's talk about the Roman practice of pederasty. Roman men were free to enjoy sex with other males without a perceived loss of masculinity or social status as long as they took the dominant or penetrative role, which I don't think is a moral problem as long as we're talking about consenting adults. But back in Rome, that right extended to men having sex with boys, in particular, slave boys. Roman citizens having sex with slave boys might not have been constantly and openly discussed, but it was certainly happening and it was certainly not illegal. You could have sex with your slave boys, uh, whether they wanted you to or not, and you could have sex with other men's slave boys if the owner said it was cool. The first century BCE Roman dramatist, Quintus Navius, wrote that uh, boys were more attractive at the onset of puberty and that the sexual use of boys ceased after their butts became hairy. Gaius Lucilius, a second century BC poet or BCE poet, uh, drew comparisons between anal sex with boys and vaginal sex with females. So uh, Mark Peden, are you saying that God was cool with the rampant ass raping of boys in the Roman empire? Is that why the rapture didn't occur back then? But now he's so pissed about sex changes he wants to fucking tear it all down. It's a nonsense argument. Makes zero sense. And if you're thinking, yeah, but that was before Jesus died, so that doesn't apply as far as Christian second coming logic goes. Well, no, this Roman behavior continued, uh, continued during the first few centuries uh, CE, after death, right, AD. So that argument is null and void. And I say all this with love. Please, if you're a Christian, uh, don't waste your time 
focusing on the end days. There's a lot of love and forgiveness you can focus on instead. So why don't you do that? Just do that, right? I'll bet you'll be a lot happier. Don't waste your time on clowns like Hal Lindsey. Hal is 90 years old now. He's still alive. I hope he sits down on his balls today. Then I hope he falls down when he tries to move off his balls and he breaks both his hips. Fuck Hal Lindsey. That old prick, all he's done is spread unnecessary panic and fear over the course of his overly long and useless life. And now that he's on YouTube, he's just another idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. And again, I apologize for my voice. I'm on a million decongestants and cold medicines. And the doctor said, it's, you know, it's just gonna, it's gonna take five, six days for it to break up and speak normal again. Ugh, viruses. Why? Okay, so now we know a little bit more about Hal uh, Lindsay and, and, and the belief system he had. And this was the belief system that the weavers were getting into. They were digging this message. Hal spoke to them. They were worried about the end times. They were worried about the U.S. economy collapsing. They were worried about the immorality of U.S. society. They feared God. They feared authority. They were fearsome, worried people. And Vicky's family began to worry about them. Vicky's family was watching them become more and more involved in their fundamentalist uh, you know, belief system, hearing them talk more and more about how the world was a terrible, evil place, a morally bankrupt place, decaying before their very eyes. And this is while life is going good for them, right? He has a good job. They're making good money. Another major book that influenced the couple was the fictional Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, the founder of objectivism, a Rand-made philosophy revolving around reason and individual liberties. Vicky found the hero's struggle between the individual and the state prophetic and its action-inspiring. The book paints a picture of a government so overbearing and immoral that creative people led by a self-reliant protagonist go on strike and move to the mountains. You will win, the book's protagonist cries from his mountain hideout. When you are ready to pronounce the oath I have taken at the start of my battle. And for those who wish to know the day of my return, I shall now repeat it to the hearing of the world. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live my life for the sake of another man, nor ask another to live for mine. So the weavers are getting ready to run for the hills, right? They want to go hide from the corrupt government. Vicky also is enjoying some lesser known works of the writer H.G. Wells known for his popular stories about time travel, space, and hidden civilizations. He also wrote some dark religious stories like A Vision of Judgment and A Dream of Armageddon. That second story has eerie similarities to what the weavers would go through on Ruby Ridge. Uh, in that Wells story, the main character dreams he's a great leader living with the woman in the future on a thousand foot cliff with a view in several directions. On his cliff, men come to him and tell him they are at war with him. Why cannot you leave me alone? The dreamer asks. I have done away with these things. I have ceased to be anything but a private man. And then the story ends with the man and the woman being killed. Also in the late 70s, Vicky started to have visions that she thought were sent to her by God. So that's fun. While in the bathtub one night, Vicky claimed that she had visions from God about their deaths and about great violence in a cabin on a mountaintop. So pretty eerie. Or did it just make sense, right? Is this all about self-fulfilling prophecy? would they end up just living out a lot of their own drama? They were also dreaming about living on a mountaintop removed from society at this time. So it does make sense that she was thinking about mountaintops and they were worried about, you know, a government coming for them. So it actually does make sense based on her thought processes. Uh, Randy also had visions. So both of them having prophetic visions, you know, reading a ton of doomsday shit, weird that this would lead to something bad. Uh, Randy dreamed of a configurations of buildings on a hillside, a cabin and outbuildings. You know, buildings he would later build himself. Randy and Vicky also began to identify as literalists because they believed that the Bible was the literal word of God. 
and that all of it must be taken as truth, even the laws of the Old Testament, which, you know, many churches now treat as arcane and kind of uh, irrelevant dogma, literalism. I'm going to risk uh, being super offensive again and say that literalism is fucking nonsense. Anyone who claims to truly be a biblical literalist concerning the Old Testament, I think you're kidding yourself, right? There are hundreds of things that the Old Testament prohibits you not to do. I have never met a single Christian who literally follows all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, not a single one. And you haven't either, right? If you, if you follow it literally, you're supposed to do, there's so many rules. You're not supposed to mix fabrics, right? So don't be a fabric mixing heathen. Leviticus 19.19, King James Version, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. No interpretation. Take that literally. You don't get to wear a polyester blend tracksuit, you fucking sinner. How dare you mix your fabrics, right? That's the one thing that really chaps God's ass, the mixing of the fabrics. Uh, you're also not supposed to trim your beard either if you're going to take it literally. Leviticus 19.27, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. No room for interpretation there, right? You got to let your hair grow out. You know, despite a lot of belief to the contrary, God only loves hippies. So stop offending God, you clean, shaven dipshit. Look at you with your perfectly faded hair. No wonder the Westboro Baptist Church is so mad at the U.S. military. They all got their fucking devil haircuts. I think you see how ridiculous it is to truly take it all literally. Again, I've never met a literalist who follows all of the Bible's teachings. Literally, I've met a ton who do a lot of cherry picking, right? This first lines up with the, you know, other beliefs they already have. So they'll follow that one, but they won't follow this other one, etc. So the weavers are getting crazier. Yet again, I feel like I'm researching people I, I knew growing up in Riggins. One family in particular who I will not name, a family who also worried about the collapse of the U.S. economy because of the dollar not being backed by gold, a family who also was convinced of Armageddon coming soon, a family who claimed to be literalists. Uh, they like to follow biblical quotes such as Leviticus 18.22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination, super homophobic. But then they would ignore the book of the rest of Leviticus. Verses like 19.33 and 19.34, which instructs one to be kind and welcoming to immigrants. How often is this one being preached? It says in the King James Version, if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born, born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Right? You're supposed to welcome immigrants, according to Leviticus. Treat them as your own. Treat, treat them as one of you because you were once an immigrant. Sorry if I'm going overboard driving some of these points home, but it does piss me off. Because I just, it fucking, it's one of the things that chaps my ass more than anything else in the world because of my upbringing. People who are like, oh, you got to follow. Look at this. Look what it says right here. Yeah, then take it all, motherfucker. If you're going to be literalist, then follow it all or shut the fuck up. Oh man, Randy Weaver reminds me so much of people I grew up knowing. I feel like I truly understand where him and Vicky were coming from. I think there's some good lessons to be learned from their tragedy uh, that their life became. I don't think that they were all bad people. They weren't totally bad I just think, I think they were batshit crazy in some ways. I think they wanted to live moral lives, but then I think, uh, you know, they, they fell into this kind of weird dogmatic trap of literalist interpretation and they succumbed to uh, all this apocalyptic nonsense and it did them a great disservice, as I think it does to everyone else who follows that line of thought. 
The Weavers decided they would only read the King James Version of the Bible going forward because Vicky now uh, believes that other translations are not divinely inspired and are pagan-influenced. I've heard that rhetoric, rhetoric too. My paternal grandma once told me that all Catholics were going to burn in hell, for sure, because Satan had infiltrated the early Catholic Church and destroyed the Bible. Fucking craziness. Uh, they started having lots of Bible study sessions at home. There would be anywhere from four to 10 people at the Weaver's house, sometimes as often as four nights a week, talking about all this. Randy led the Bible study most of the time, but everyone read chapters and commented on what they uh, might mean. Vicki was a scripturalist and scholar of the group, or you know, the main one. It was as if she had memorized the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Acts to Zechariah. She knew, she knew what God wanted. She was convinced uh, you know, that she knew. She convinced Randy of what she knew. And if Randy knew something, he found it impossible not to tell other people about it. He was that kind of guy. Coworkers, neighbors, he wanted to talk to everyone. Everything with him was, was either right or it was wrong. It was very much like black and white, rigid thinking. You know, he tossed off authoritative opinions constantly. In the late 70s, he began to warn anyone who would listen about current politics, tell them to repent, you know, launch into biblical prophecy regarding the end times. You know, he, he sounded like he was becoming someone I would much rather throw down the stairs and have to listen to for more than 10 minutes. Uh, it wasn't long before Randy found a, a group of about 10 other men who felt the same way he did. They were born-again, coffee-swilling Christians who met at a Cedar Falls restaurant called Sambo's. They'd meet there at night debating and sharing scripture. He was super into all this. He's talking about it once a week at the uh, diner. He's talking about it three, four times, you know, uh, more every week with Vicky and, and friends at home. At one home Bible study, Randy and Vicky interpreted a verse of Revelation, the beast causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And his number is 600, three score and six. Six, 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 the beast. Randy said this was a metaphor for computers. Soon he said everyone would be cataloged on computers, births, schooling, purchases, homes. Every credit card connected as they are by computers would mark people with the number of the beast, Vicky said. Of course, once the currency was devalued and finally changed, no man could buy or sell without a credit card without 666. There was going to be a big social breakdown, Randy would say. The government would, would use the opportunity to declare martial law, crushing democracy, killing the good Christian Americans. People would be rioting in the streets. The traitorous government would turn against its own people. The only protection would be clusters of good Christians with guns. This might be a good time to point out that there's still a decent percentage of Northern Idahoans who have a very similar beliefs uh, living here currently. One of the last times I walked into the local Nutra shop, two employees were openly talking about Hollywood elites making sacrifices to the demon Baphomet. As if that was A, a normal thing to believe, and B, okay to talk about in front of customers. Uh, I remember my dad talking about stuff like that in the early 90s. He briefly returned to his fundamentalist doomsday roots and I remember he and my uh, stepmom at the time talking about how the New World Order government was going to implant chips in all of the citizens and have the mark of the beast. And, you know, and, and if you didn't have the mark of the beast, you would be able to buy or sell. You have to basically take off and hide out in the hills and barter or fend for yourself and wait for the end time. It's all so crazy. We will have chip implants someday and it will be glorious because then we won't have to worry about losing our credit cards anymore, right? It's just a different form of credit card that happens to be under your skin. It'll be convenient. And uh, it's not going to have shit to do with the Christian devil. In the early 80s, after years of being super into all this, all this apocalyptic shit, having their prophetic visions and so many Bible study sessions, Randy and Vicky decided it was time to get off the grid and head to Northern Idaho. Awesome. 
Vicky came up with a plan to survive in the apocalypse that involved moving away from corrupt civilization. And the Weaver family did just that in the early 80s. They moved to a 20-acre property in remote Ruby Ridge, Idaho, built a cabin there, paid only $5,000 cash for the land. Right, they aren't using some Mark of the Beast credit card or are going to write some kind of devil check. Uh, well, I'm sure they use a check, but you know, you know what I mean. Not going to use some kind of devil credit. Uh, they built their home cheaply as well, doing the work themselves, used mainly uh, leftover materials. It's kind of like the thrift store equivalent of a house. They homeschooled their kids, and guns and God, as well as writing and arithmetic and lived pretty much off the grid. They had no electricity, no running water. And for the next 10 years, they raised seemingly happy, healthy, and kind of end of the time zombie, zombie apocalypse ready kids. And then the apocalypse did not happen. Uh, but hell did come to the Weavers in, form, uh, in the form of an armed standoff with U.S. law enforcement. Uh, we're going to get to the standoff that would put the Weavers into the national spotlight during today's Time Suck timeline in just a moment. But first, let's look at the history of the white supremacy movement that would surround the Weavers, important to today's narrative, uh, would surround them in Ruby Ridge and surround their story in the media. The stigma of white supremacists involved in the Ruby Ridge standoff uh, haunts Northern Idaho to this day. It's so annoying. When I told some of my Los Angeles friends I was heading to Northern Idaho, uh, skinheads was one of the first words they, they tossed around. When I asked them to come visit and see that it wasn't so bad, several of my Jewish friends half-jokingly said that they would never visit Northern Idaho. Mixing things up with some local white supremacists is where the real trouble began for the Weavers. While Randy Weaver never officially joined the Aryan Nations, much of his standoff story revolves around the ideas of that group. Randy has been labeled a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, a white nationalist by the media. According to Weaver himself, he never embraced their ideology. However, he did attend several summertime camp meetings at a nearby Aryan Brotherhood compound in Hayden, Idaho, over several years with his family. He brought his kids, which, you know, kind of fucked up. He may not have been a white supremacist, but when the Aryan Nations told him to come over for a get-together, he didn't decline the invitation, and then he came back over and over again. Why would you do that? Right outside of doing that as a joke where you fuck with them and then post it on social media later to make them look like ass clowns, why would you actually go to a white supremacist compound? Right? I sure as hell would not do that. Uh, even though part of me would really want to go just to see how fucking crazy those people are because I am curious. Right? I'd want to go in the same way I'd want to sneak into like uh, some insane cults compound just to see what they really do behind closed doors. But would I bring my family just to hang out and enjoy the company of white supremacists? No, but Weaver did. And I don't think it's right to overlook how terrible of a choice that was. In an effort to be fair to Randy, I mean, he and Vicky would cite differences in religious beliefs between themselves and the group. But again, they went numerous times. So they were, you know, at the very least, I think it's safe to say they were pretty racist. Uh, and definitely racist, definitely racist toward Jewish people. The ideology of the Aryan Nations is, is largely, mostly uh, anti-Semitic. A lot of New World Order, biblical Armageddon prophecy interpretation mumbo jumbo. In a later interview about his racial beliefs, Randy said when questioned about believing in a secret cabal of Jewish people running things and, and wanting to make life hell for Gentiles, he said, well, it's not all the Jews. So yeah, he's pretty racist. Regardless of how racist he was or wasn't, uh, you know, to get some extra context that will help us understand what led to the siege on Ruby Ridge, we should look into a bit of the white supremacy movement here in the U.S. We, we covered some of this during our KKK Suck, episode 50. So we won't go too deep here today, but it's been a while since that suck and worth going over, uh, you know, this area of information again. And we'll, we'll add some information I haven't covered before as well. And we'll get into this history lesson uh, right after a quick word from our first sponsor, 
Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy Area Nation Infiltration Air Pluck the Hate Away Seminar. In this important seminar, you'll learn what music to play to heal the hate if you can infiltrate an Aryan Nation compound get-together of hate, right? You'll learn some white supremacist melodies to make them think that you're on their side at first. Start off with a little racist skinhead classic like Romper Stomper, pulling on the boots. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, if you could kick off the chorus for us. Yeah, not a problem. Hmm? Skinhead, skinhead, running through, through the, the night. night. Making, making lots, lots of, of trouble, trouble, starting lots of fight. fights. Skin dog, skin head, getting really pissed. Skin head, skin head, on my wrist. And then when they think that you're cool with their hateful ways, you transition into Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder's Ebony and Ivory, where the lyrics are all about racial harmony. Reverend Dr. Joe, could you help me with the start of that song? Give it a go. Okay. Ebony and Ivory. Live together in perfect harmony Side by side on my piano Keyboard, oh lord Why don't we And see, then everyone gets together So sign up today for the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy, Area Nation Infiltration, Air Pluck the Hateaway Seminar, and Air Pluck the Shit Out of Some Racism. Hail Nimrod. And I, I just want to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Like the, we're, we're denouncing it. Denouncing it. these, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I want to make sure everyone knows that. I did ask Joe okay. be, before the episode if he could just memorize some skinhead lyrics. But to be clear, we did that so that we could denounce it. Very clear. We know it doesn't look great out of context. It, it sure doesn't. It sure doesn't. <laughs> but I'm going to enroll. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to air pluck the head away, you guys. Okay, that was fun. Now let's head back to the 1960s. And thank you, Joe, for doing that. Uh, Joe, I'm sure that was very uncomfortable. It's okay. So is my life. And uh, <laughs> Okay, we're going to head back to the 1960s and talk about people of different races not getting along. Uh, one of my favorite decades in American history, as far as just being so interesting, so much change going on, some of it good, some of it bad. In the 1960s, the Christian identity theology, formerly a fairly benign expression of what is known as British Israelism or Anglo-Israelism, uh, began to spread through the U.S. and Canada, particularly on the west coast of these nations, and it took some ugly turns. This belief holds that white Americans and Canadians are the real descendants of the biblical tribes of Israel, and then this belief morphed into a form of anti-Semitism and then into white supremacy. In 2003, author Nicole Nichols an expert on far-right racist and religious groups in America, defined the concept of this Christian identity as practiced by many white supremacists and separatist groups. She wrote that Christian identity became not an organization, but an ideology that many organizations adopted in some form or fashion. She said that Christian identity elevates white supremacy and separatism to a godly ideal, calling it the theological, the theolo excuse me, the ideological fuel that fires much of the activity of the racist far right. According to this Christian identity theology, Jewish uh, people are neither the true Israelites nor the true chosen people of God. Instead, Christian identity proponents claim that Jews are descended from an Asiatic people known as the Khazars, who settled near the Black Sea during the Middle Ages. And then God's chosen people were in fact the Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Nordic, Aryan people. And those of kindred blood are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hence the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Classic historical rewriting, right? The Jews are not God's people. The white man is, always has been, and the Jews have been lying to and tricking the white man for over 2,000 years. 
Uh, Michael Barkin, a reported expert on radical right groups, said the virulent racist and anti-Semitic theology is prevalent among many right-wing extremist groups and has been called the glue of the racist far right. One of the most influential documents that many of these modern anti-Semitic groups and individuals cite as proof of a Jewish conspiracy to keep the white man down is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, we've covered this bullshit document in a few past sucks and also on The Secret Suck, but it's been a minute and some important propaganda to continually denounce from time to time. So I'll throw, uh, throw down another overview of the protocols here. It's fooled a lot of people for a long time. Continues to cause racism, hate, and harm. It's also very interesting. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, also called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, and the Blame the Jews for Anything and Everything Chronicles, it's a fraudulent document that has served as pretext and rationale for a lot of anti-Semitism, mainly in the 20th century and the 21st century. The document is purported to be a report of a series of 24 meetings, in some versions, 27 in others, held in Basel, Switzerland in 1897 at the time of the First Zionist Congress. And that meeting of the First Zionist Congress did occur. Roughly 200 Jewish community leaders from 17 different nations did meet to discuss the goal of forming a Jewish state in Palestine, since at the time, the Jewish people had no country to call home and had been living as nomadic people for centuries. Roughly 50 of the attendees were from Russia. Ten Christians also attended as guests so they could monitor and watch in hopes that the world wouldn't freak out over what the Jewish people might be up to. Uh, and the event attracted a fair amount of media attention worldwide. Most of the coverage had the tone of, what exactly are the Jews up to? And then life went on and the media was largely forgotten about for most for a couple years. And then a Russian anti-Semitic propagandist living in France, Pierre Ivanovich uh, Rajkovsky, a member of the Tsar's secret police wrote the protocols alleged to be a record of what was really talked about at the Zionist Congress when the Christians weren't around. The Russian government had been an anti, uh, had been anti-Semitic and worried about the Jewish people for decades. Propaganda was nothing new for them. This propaganda just became far more successful than most of their earlier propaganda. Uh, Rajkovsky wrote that the Jews and the Freemasons were said to have made plans to disrupt Christian civilization and erect a world state, one world government, the new world order, right, under their joint rule. Liberalism and socialism were to be the means of subverting Christendom. If subversion failed, all the capitals of Europe were to be sabotaged. Uh, these protocols, this propaganda, uh, were printed in Russia in abbreviated form in 1903 uh, in a popular newspaper, and then again in 1905. And then they were translated into German, French, English, and other European languages, and then soon became to be a classic of anti-Semitic literature. In the United States, Henry Ford's private newspaper, Dearborn Independent, often cited these protocols as evidence of the Jewish threat. Ford was so worried about the Jewish people trying to take over the world that he funded the printing of 500,000 copies of this, distributed throughout the U.S. in the 1920s. The fraudulent nature of the protocols was first revealed in 1921 by Philip Graves of the Times in London, who demonstrated their obvious resemblance to a satire on Napoleon III by a French lawyer, Maurice Jolie, published in 1864, right? It was just a plagiarism. Uh, and then subsequent invest investigation, particularly between Russian historian Vladimir Burtsev, uh, revealed that the protocols were forgeries that also had partially plagiarized the satire of Jolie, a fantastic novel by Hermann Goetsch, published in 1868. And then there were other sources. So, so the, the author just pulled from a bunch of existing sources and twisted it to meet his own agenda. All right, it was proven by academics to be a forgery. 
But by the time it was proven, the damage was already done. Everyone reads the headline. Almost no one reads the retraction, a problem that continues to this day. Uh, The protocols talked about a conspiracy to destroy Christianity and control the world that included a plan to take over the media as laid out in the 12th protocol, which read, literature and journalism are two of the most important educative forces, and therefore our government will become proprietor of the majority of the journals. It will put us in possession of a tremendous influence upon the public mind. And to this day, you still see cries on the internet of the Jews control the media. The 17th protocol warns of a direct attack on Christianity. Uh, As part of this conspiracy, the Pope and the church will be annihilated so that only years divide us from the moment of the complete wrecking of the Christian religion. The final takeover will be achieved financially as stated in the 21st protocol that reads, we shall replace the money markets by grandiose government credit institutions, the object of which will be to fix the price of industrial values in accordance with government views. You may imagine for yourselves what immense power we shall thereby secure for ourselves. And again, to this day, you know, there are cries on the internet of the Jews have all the money, right? There are concerns by some about credit because of its relation initially to this document, right? It's relation to the mark of the beast. It's part of the end times. Uh, The protocols make it seem as if the Jewish people are responsible for a number of past and present disasters from the downfall of Christian monarchies to the French Revolution to the advancement of liberal and bourgeois ideas. The protocols contain a number of metaphors essential to conspiracy vocabulary, such as the invisible hand that pushes pieces on a chessboard. The plotters are portrayed as poisonous snakes, spiders weaving their webs, wolves ready to devour Christian sheep. The last protocols describe the future reign of the Jews in Christian terms, announcing the coming of a king of the Jews who will be the real pope of the universe, the patriarch of an international church. In addition to the protocols and building upon them, There was also American preacher Wesley Swift's influence on the white supremacy movement. In the 1940s, a former Methodist minister, Wesley Swift, started his own church, later known as the Church of Jesus Christ Christian. And Wesley Swift was, like the uh, propagandist writer of the uh, Protocols of Zion, like Hal Lindsey, a huge piece of shit. Swift had deep ties to a number of radical religious right-wing groups, including the Ku Klux Klan, Swift and his associates set the stage for the mutation of the Christian identity movement into a loosely organized set of virulently anti-Semitic racist belief systems that came to be grouped together as uh, under the Christian identity rubric. Uh, Swift himself taught that only the white race was created in the form of God, while Asian and African races were created uh, from beasts of the fields. Thusly, they are subhuman creations and not part of God's people. In Swift's version of Genesis, Eve, the wife of the first true man, Adam, was seduced by the serpent who masqueraded as a white man. Eve bore a son from her union with this snake, Cain, who uh, asserted was uh, who he asserted was the actual father of the Jewish people. He said the Jewish people were the literal descendants of Satan. This reinterpretation, sometimes called the two-seed or seed-liner theory, supports the Christian identity propensity to demonize Jews, whom Swift and others continue to label as the spawn of Satan. Today's white Europeans and their American and Canadian descendants, Swift taught, are descended from the true God of Adam and Eve, Abel, uh, and are the actual chosen people of God. Some Christian identity adherents add on to this claim and claim that subhuman pre-Adamic races existed and spawned the non-white races of the world, which they have labeled as the mud people. So Jesus Christ, I mean, why, why do people complicate their lives with this kind of shit? All the real problems in the world of disease and economic inequality, the real struggle of, tr- tr- struggle of trying to find love 
and you know, and uh, the work that goes on into maintaining a career and forming and maintaining friendships and family relationships, and on and on. And then some people want to add a bunch of imaginary struggles to their plight as well, right? There, there is a lot of things to be worried about in the world. Jewish people being Satan's minions, not one of them. Do more people just need to get better hobbies to fucking fix this? Like, what the fuck? Take all the time you're spending trying to analyze convoluted, nonsensical conspiracies and learn to play, I don't know, the guitar or something. Maybe speak a new language, right? Learn how to get a, I don't know, study for a black belt in martial arts or something. Do something productive with all that free time, fucking ignorant weirdos. Uh, now back to the 60s uh, for a bit before we launched into the timeline. In the 1960s, a new group of Christian identity leaders emerged to spread radical racist identity theology throughout America and Canada. The most prominent among them were three disciples of Wesley Swift, James K. Warner, William Potter Gale, and then the man most important to today's tale, Richard Butler. Uh, Warner would move to Louisiana and play a leading role in the fight against civil rights there. Uh, Gale, an early leader of the Christian Defense League and his paramilitary arm, the California Rangers, would go on to form uh, to found the Posse Comitatus in 1969, a group that would help bring around bring around Sorry, my fucking sinus is driving me crazy. Makes it so extra hard to pronounce anything. Uh, he would go help bring around the sovereign citizen movement. Sovereign, sovereign citizens believe that they, not judges, juries, law enforcement, or elected officials, get to decide which laws to obey, which to ignore, and they don't think they should have to pay taxes. And they have all this crazy rationale to back up this belief that is far too complicated and convoluted to break down today. It's madness. They're people who believe a Jewish shadow government has sold U.S. citizens into international slavery, and it's insane. We could easily devote a, a full suck to the sovereign citizen movement. And then, but the important thing to note as far as Randy Weaver is they're people who don't believe they're obligated to listen to the government. They shouldn't have to pay taxes, and they don't have to follow laws. Then there's Richard Butler, a character crucial to today's story, the dude who ran the Aryan Nation compound that Randy brought his family to in Hayden Lake. You know, a visit that led to uh, more visits, that led to a crime, that led to an arrest warrant, that led to the Ruby Ridge standoff. Butler moved Wesley Swift's Church of Jesus Christ Christian to Northern Idaho and recast it as a neo-Nazi group, the Aryan Nations, in the early 70s. Under the leadership of Butler, Gail, Warner, others, uh, the Christian identity movement permeated most of the far right, right? Uh, you know, uh, including the, the Klan, the racist skinhead organization known as the Hammerskins, Christian identity enclaves provide a trail of safe or would provide a trail of safe havens for movement activists stretching from Hayden Lake in northern Idaho to uh, you know the Oklahoma Arkansas border. Many white supremacists on the run from federal authorities, you know, would find shelter and support from these Christian identity followers. Uh, while Randy and Wiki, Vicky Weaver may or may not have been interested in these ideas, they did worry about a secret one-world Jewish government. And they did share these groups' concern over an intimate apocalypse brought on by this Jewish conspiracy. Many Christian identity adherents believe that the biblical apocalypse is coming soon. They believe Jesus Christ will return to earth only after a time of tribulation, great battle between good and evil that'll set the stage for the return of Christ and the final transformation of the world. Identity followers believe it's their duty to prepare for the apocalypse. And this is terrifying. Some of them actually believe it is their duty to help bring about the apocalypse. They, uh, they tend to cast the apocalypse in racial terms, whites versus non-whites. Identity adherents believe the worldly institutions will collapse during the end times. Therefore, tend to distrust. they tend to distrust such institutions, making identity theology appealing to anti-government types. 
uh, you know, in militia types. In the 21st century, Christian identity groups are strongest in the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada and in the U.S. Midwest, though identity churches can be found throughout the U.S. and in other parts of Canada. Uh, identity churches also exist in Ireland, Great Britain, Australia, and South Africa. Estimates about how many uh, members of these groups there are vary from about 25,000 to 50,000. Identity adherents have committed a number of violent acts, often against the government and or financial institutions. Uh, in February of 1983, identity adherent Gordon Call killed two, S killed two U.S. Marshals who attempted to arrest him on a parole violation and then killed an Arkansas sheriff before finally being gunned down by authorities. Why? Because he thought the police were serving an, an, an unjust Zionist shadow government because he thought killing those officers would help usher in the apocalypse. Uh, the white supremacist terrorist group, The Order, contained a number of identity members, including David Tate, who killed a Missouri Highway Patrol officer while attempting to flee an identity survivalist compound on April 15, 1985. During the 1980s, small identity groups such as The New Order, aka The Order 2, and The Arizona Patriots committed bombings and armed car robberies. After the Oklahoma City bombing of April 19, 1995, identity minister Willie Ray Lampley attempted a number of his own bombings. In 1996, the Montana Freeman, led by identity members, engaged in an 81-day standoff with federal authorities. Between 1996 and 1998, Eric Robert Rudolph, who was connected to identity ministers Nord Davis and Dan Gaiman, bombed an Atlanta gay bar, bombed several abortion clinics, and the Atlanta Summer Olympics. In 1999, identity member and former Northern Idaho Aryan Nation's compound security guard, Buford Furrow, went on a shooting spree at a Jewish community center in Los Angeles, wounding a five-year-old boy, two six-year-old boys, a 16-year-old girl, and a 68-year-old woman, and he also killed a 39-year-old man. The FBI, the ACLU, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as many mainstream media outlets, constantly report that domestic terrorism from these groups is more of a threat to American citizens than Islamic terrorism. So good job, you racist shit-for-brain idiots you so-called patriots, more of a threat to America than ISIS. Uh, there's also a connection between these racist Christian identity groups, the Weavers and the Oklahoma City bombing of 1985. Timothy McVeigh, the most famous name associated with the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, you know, will be appalled by the government's conduct in Ruby Ridge, as is his friend Terry Nichols, with whom he's living with. McVeigh closely was following the events in Ruby Ridge, both in local newspapers and in publications such as the white supremacist separatist publication Spotlight. And he felt that mainstream media gave only the government's version of the events. Later, he would recall this as a defining moment in his life. In a book titled American Terrorist, based on prison interviews given by McVeigh to two reporters, uh, McVeigh targeted the federal building in retaliation for the Ruby Ridge and Waco Branch Davidian tragedies. McVeigh would, of course, bomb a federal building in Oklahoma City, where the blast killed 168 people, including 19 children, more than 500 others injured. Okay, now that I've laid out a lot of the backstory, for our primary characters, right, uh, and, and, and the ideology they would be surrounded with in northern Idaho, we can get into and properly understand their standoff. The 90s were a weird time in America for homegrown terrorism. Right before we get into our timeline, uh, a word from today's real sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, 
play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs, Hero Croissant, or the one gram of net carbs, Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. 
Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now it is time for today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Okay, let's head back just for a few details we missed uh, earlier to the 70s. In March of 1976, while the Weavers lived in Cedar Falls, Iowa, Vicki gives birth to the couple's first child, Sarah. In 1978, Vicki begins uh, having visions of her, her and her future family living on a mountaintop where they'd be safe from the coming apocalypse. The Weavers formed the Bible study group we talked about earlier that began to worry about Zog, Zionist organized government, Randy starts collecting guns. Vicky studies self-sufficiency and survivalist techniques. In July of 78, as the couple began to search for a mountaintop retreat, Vicky gives birth to a son, Samuel. In 1982, Vicky gives birth to a second daughter, Rachel, while still in Iowa. In 1983, the Weavers sell their Iowa home and head west in August, finding and buying uh, that 20-acre parcel on Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho. In 1984, in March, the Weavers completed construction on their no electricity, no running water having cabin, began living on Ruby Ridge. Uh, they would begin homeschooling, homeschooling their children. Uh, this weirds me out. Thinking about two families whose homes are on either side of the house directly behind mine. Uh, they are fundamentalist religious types who also homeschool their kids. Makes me kind of wonder if they're teaching their kids about some Zionist shadow government. I wonder if they're preparing them for the apocalypse. Uh, I wonder if their kids are getting vaccinated. You know, I, I love Coeur d'Alene. But I would love it more if we had less of these paranoid weirdos living around me. I mean, when the apocalypse does come, I think I feel like I should probably use my guns to kill those people first, right? I mean, they probably have the best apocalypse preparations. And if I can take them out, I'll have years worth of dry goods and water purification tablets that I can use to keep my family uh, safe. Uh, joking around about this stuff, I remember my dad telling me when I was uh, living in Spokane in my 20s about how if shit went down, I was to drive as fast as I could to get to the little Salmon River Canyon south of Riggins where we had enough ammo and wild game and clean water to survive, you know, some type of uh, apocalyptic economic collapse, make a stand for ourselves when the NWO, right, their, their, their forces came to enslave America. Then enough of that crazy got into me that I do take some comfort living here in Northern Idaho, thinking that if shit does go down, I don't think that it will, but if it does, I'm in a pretty good place to survive it. I'm learning so much about myself in this suck. I feel like I'm studying my own, uh, you know, upbringing. I relate way more uh, than I care to, uh, to Randy Weaver's uh, survivalist mentality. Uh, in the mid eighties, the Weavers take in a fatherless and troubled teenager named Kevin Harris. Uh, they're, you know, they're crazy, but they're not all bad. They also begin doubling down on uh, some racist anti-Semitic views around this time, finding justification for them and their interpretations of the Bible. You know, they, they, they now, uh, you know, uh, begin to limit their association with, with those who don't share their kind of like-minded views. They got a nice echo chamber going. Nothing like surrounding yourself with, uh, you know, only those who share your misguided views to really solidify those views. In January of 1985, the U.S. Secret Service, the USSS, investigates allegations from neighbors of Randy Weaver that Weaver has been threatening to kill President Reagan, uh, Governor John Evans, and uh, other unspecified law enforcement officials. That's Idaho Governor John Evans. The Weaver's neighbor, Terry Kinnison, and the Weaver family get into a $3,000 land dispute, which Kinnison loses 
and is uh, forced to pay an extra 2,100 in damages and court costs. And Kinison would be the one to inform the FBI that Weaver had threatened to kill the president, the Pope, the governor of Idaho, law enforcement, and others. And, you know, something Kinison was just trying to frame him. While Kinison may have been getting back at Randy because he was pissed about the land dispute, I doubt he made up these claims. I doubt he was lying about the threats. I mean, the more I've learned about Randy and Vicky, uh, and, you know, the more we're going to learn, this seems exactly like the type of thing that they would do. Uh, the Secret Service learns through interviews uh, that Weaver is also associated with members of Richard Butler's Aryan Nations compound. So, you know, you know, Weaver's gone off the fucking rails, living out on a remote mountain in a shack with no electricity, no running water, place he built himself, homeschooling his kids, hanging out with skinheads, waiting for the apocalypse. Now, in all likelihood, he's threatening to kill leaders of the government, right? A government he, he does think is in bed with some sort of Zionist New World Order shadow, one world government, right? Secret Service interviews Weaver, who denies his affiliation with Aryan Nations. He denies making threats against President Reagan and Governor Evans. Of course he does. It's deny or go to jail. He's crazy, but he's not stupid. No charges are filed against Weaver as a result of his alleged threats. On February 28th, 1985, Randy and Vicki Weaver file an affidavit with the Boundary County, Idaho clerk claiming that false allegations made to the Secret Service were part of an elaborate plot designed to provoke federal authorities into storming their home and taking their land. Weaver writes, right, this is something he sends to the government. He writes, he may have to defend himself and his family from physical attacks on his life. Jesus Christ. He had such a huge hand in creating the horrible situation that would happen in 1992. It's like he and Vicky's insane belief system just willed what would happen to them into existence. They worried so much about the government storming and taking their property that they did a bunch of shit that led to the government, right? Coming onto their property. So sad, you know, if he just wouldn't have been such a paranoid lunatic, none of this would have happened. In 1985, like a crazy person, Weaver writes a letter to President Reagan, apologizing for false allegations made by his neighbors against him. God, I wish I could access a copy of this letter. I bet it is so good. Dear Mr. President, this is Handy Randy. Me and Sticky Vicky would like to clear some stuff up. I know that some of your Secret Service agents have told you that I'm stockpiling weapons and hanging out with Richard Butler and his anti-government Aryan Nation types and that I want to kill you, that I want to kill the governor of Idaho. And I want to kill for all of those who work for you crooked anti-American politicians and that is not true. I am just a regular guy who left a good job in Iowa and moved to Northern Idaho to live off the grid in a shack with no electricity or running water who refuses to let his kids go to school where they would undoubtedly be indoctrinated into your Zionist, anti-Christian, satanic, one-world government agenda and have had to, I, I would not want my children to share classrooms with subhuman mud people. Vicky and I just want to live out our lives in peace until the inevitable race war breaks out that will precede the rapture that Hal Lindsey assures me is coming any day now, where God will destroy you and all the other crooked politicians who began selling out our citizens into international slavery when the gold standard was no longer used to back up our currency. Please do not think I want to kill you. Not yet. God will do that shortly. I will not kill you unless God gives me the green light. Tell Nancy hello. God bless you, you satanic puppet. Sincerely, Handy Randy Weaver. <laughs> I bet it wasn't that far off of that. Uh, in July of 1986, a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms informant named Kenneth Fadley, or Fadley, is introduced to Weaver at the World Aryan Congress in Hayden Lake, Idaho. Weird. I thought he wasn't hanging out with those guys. I thought that's what he said in his letter. Uh, Fadley meets Weaver again in January 1987 at another Aryan get-together, also in July of 1877, and also in July of 1989 at, at another Aryan World Congress. 
That's so weird. He's not hanging out, hanging out with these guys, yet he's hanging out with them all the time. Uh, weird that he won't let his kids go to public school. God knows what kinds of influences they'll get there, but he will let his kids on a regular basis hang out with skinheads. I gotta say, the more I learn about Randy Weaver, the less I care for him. Uh, at the July 1989 Congress, Weaver invites the BT BATF informant, uh, Fadley, to his house to discuss forming a group to fight against the Zionist organized government, ZOG. Handy Randy is fucking mad. On October 11th, 1989, Fadley meets with Weaver at a restaurant in Sandpoint, Idaho, uh, at which time Weaver says he, he can supply sawed-off shotguns to Fadley for the upcoming revolution, like a psychopath. Randy recalls that Fadley uh, first wanted machine guns, but Randy couldn't do that. He didn't have access to machine guns, but he could saw down the barrels of some shotguns. On October 24th, Randy Weaver sells two sawed-off shotguns to Fadley in a park in Sandpoint for $700, which is illegal. After selling them to Fadley, he also starts to think that Fadley might be an informant. In November, Fadley breaks contact with Randy, and then Weaver accuses him of being a cop. Uh, uh, ATF agent uh, Herbert Byerly submits a case on May 21st, 1990 about the ATF's ongoing investigation in the Aryan Nation's compound to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boise, recommending that Weaver be prosecuted for the illegal sale of sawed-off shotguns. ATF agents Byerly and Steve Gunderson approach Randy and Sandpoint and attempt to enlist him to be an informant uh, regarding the illegal activities of Aryan Nation's members. Weaver says that he will not be a snitch. He then notifies his buddies at the Aryan Nation's headquarters that the government is attempting to infiltrate their group, right? So he for sure is, you know, fairly close with these guys. What happened to the young soldier who was willing to snitch about the illegal confiscation of drugs on base because that was the right thing to do? Apparently that, that kid is dead. Randy has changed so much since his idealistic early Idaho, Iowa days. Uh, December 13th, 1990, a federal grand jury in the District of Idaho indicts Weaver for manufacturing and possessing unregistered firearms. On January 17th, 91, ATF agents posing as stranded motorists arrest Weaver at gunpoint on weapons charges. He apparently tells the arresting agents, nice trick, you'll never do that again. Right? Uh, Randy is, uh, yeah, he's getting a little crazier, a little crazier all the time. January 18th, 1991, Weaver is arraigned before U.S. Magistrate Judge Stephen uh, M. Ayers right here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Judge Ayers appoints Everett Hoffmeister as counsel for Weaver and releases him on $10,000 personal reconnaissance bond, directs him to appear at U.S. District Court for his trial on February 19th, 1991. On January 21st, Randy receives a letter informing him that his trial date has been rescheduled uh, for March 20th, although the actual date was February 20th, so a little fuck up here. On January 22nd, Weaver calls probation officer Carl Rikens pursuant to the terms of his condition of release. On February 5th, U.S. District Court Clerk in Boise, or a U.S. District Court Clerk in Boise, Idaho, sends a notice to the parties, including uh, Weaver, that his trial date has been changed to February 20th. So now he does know the real date. Uh, but then on February 7th, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boise receives two letters. Oh, no, excuse me. Then on February 7th, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boise receives two letters from Vicki Weaver uh, dated January 21st and February 3rd, 1991. Letters addressed to the Queen of Babylon. Oh, boy. The Queen of Babylon. Uh, Vicki, uh, it's important to note, just as crazy as Randy. Uh, the letters appear to contain veiled threats. Uh, they're provided to law enforcement in Boise. I uh, wish I had a full copy of these letters as well. 
right? Just dear queen of Babylon, sticky Vicky here. Handy Randy and I received your letter informing us of the change in court date. So your Zionist government can prosecute my husband for being a patriot and wanting to fight to restore America to its place of rightful white glory. When the Jews were not, you know, pulling your puppet strings, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding toward you as I put pen to paper. Pestilence, war, famine, death are coming. Repent, bow to God's glory before it is too late. Also, can we please move the date to the summer? Uh, we don't have a snowblower and it can be a real pain in the rear to get off the ridge uh, during the winter months. Uh, thank you and God bless Sticky Vicky and Handy Randy. Also on the 7th, U.S. probation officer Carl Riken sends Randy Weaver a letter requesting Randy to contact him. He also messes up the date. He again refers to it as March 20th rather than February 20th. So God, God damn it, double check your dates when you're dealing with anti-government hotheads. Um, on uh, February 19th, 20th, 1991, uh, Weaver does not appear for trial in Moscow. You know, on either the 19th or the 20th, uh, Chief U.S. District Court Judge Harold Ryan issues a bench warrant for him. Now, would he have appeared without the March 20th clerical error? We'll never know. If he had appeared, the whole standoff could have possibly been avoided. That being said, I'm not sure he would have showed up. He and Vicky clearly felt like the Zionist government was fucking with them. On March 5th, Deputy U.S. Marshals Hunt and Mays initiate contact with Bill and Judy Greider, friends of the Weaver family. The Griders give the marshals a letter signed by the Weaver family saying, we will not obey your lawless government. So there you go. They weren't going to show up, right? The Weavers were architects of their own doom. They're making sure that their prophecies of a war with the government are going to come true. They, they just tell the U.S. Marshal Service, quote, we will not obey your lawless government. The siege that follows was so very avoidable. Right? You don't get to tell the government to fuck off. Not in any land, not even in the land of the free. That's not how life works. You're being an idiot. Uh, Vicki Weaver, uh, Weaver continues to write threatening letters to the federal government uh, by accessing old court documents at justice.gov. I was able to find an excerpt from one. And this is what it read, <laughs> which isn't that much less crazy than the stuff I was making up earlier. She wrote, a man cannot have two masters. Yahweh, Yahshua, Messiah, the anointed one of Saxon Israel, is our lawgiver and our king. We will obey him and no others. A long forgotten wind is starting to blow. Do you hear the approaching thunder? Is it that of the awakened Saxon? War is upon the land. The tyrant's blood will flow. She's out of her mind, right? They were idiots. You're, you weren't living in a theocracy, lady. Like it or not, you know, while we say God and in God we trust, we have a secular government. And if secular laws are not obeyed, there are fucking punishments that God cannot save you from. If more people understood this, we'd all be better off. Uh, on March 14th, 91, a federal grand jury in the District of Idaho indicts Weaver for failure to appear in court. The next day, March 15th, the Weavers and their three children begin an 18-month sit-in at their cabin. Just go to your court date, you foolish, stubborn asshole. Friends keep them supplied with what they need to get by. Friend and former boarder Kevin Harris visits the cabin periodically, and the U.S. Marshals begin to keep the cabin under surveillance. Not because of Big Brother, right? Because they're not coming to their court date. I heard a lot about Ruby Ridge back when I was in high school. This part of the story about how they defiantly told the government to just to fuck off was conveniently left out of the narrative. 
On March 18, 91, Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal Ron Evans, District of Idaho, provides Mar the Marshal Service uh, with analysis of the family situation and requests assistance from the Marshal Service's Special Operations Group, SOG. SOG, S-O-G, pretty close to Z-O-G, right? The thing that they're afraid of, the Zionist government, pretty weird. Uh, on March 28th, Evans briefed SOG personnel at SOG Tactical Center in Camp Beauregard, Louisiana, on developments in the Weaver case. The decision is made to send the SOG team to Idaho to gather information to, to develop a plan to arrest Randy Weaver. And again, all of this could have been avoided if Randy would have just went down to the court and been like, what do I got to do to deal with this? Right? He was an anti-government nut job who refused to own up to selling legal weapons. Uh, between June 17th and June 24th, the SOG reconnaissance team travels to northeastern Idaho, conducts assessment on the Weaver case. The team develops a plan for the safe arrest of Weaver on his property, uh, away from his wife and children. The plan describes Weaver as extremely dangerous and suicidal. Uh, July 19th, 91, Deputy Marshal Clough and Weaver's appointed counsel, Everett Hoffmeister, meet with Rodney Wiley, a Wiley, a family friend, and they ask Wiley to try and please convince Weaver to surrender. Wiley reports the following day that Weaver says he will not surrender because he fears his rights will be violated. Right? Of course, he thinks that. He thinks the government is being controlled by satanic Jewish forces. The silly, paranoid fuck is continuing to create an entirely unnecessary mess. September 28th, 1991, the Louisiana SOG team is dispatched to Northern Idaho. Uh, the plan to arrest Weaver is canceled, though, due to bad intel. On October 9th, Senior Deputy U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt asked Alan Jefferson, another friend of the Weavers, to please convey an offer of negotiations to the family. They're, they're, they're trying to get them to cooperate. Uh, the marshals begin to formulate formal, formal surrender terms. They want this to end peacefully. They're trying to be fair. On October 12th, U.S. Hunt and uh, U.S. Marshal Hunt, excuse me, and another U.S. Marshal, Ron Evans, proposed offering formal surrender terms to Weaver and request authorization from the U.S. Attorney's Office to do so. On October 17th, Assistant U.S. Attorney Ronald Howen sends a letter to Hunt and Evans directing that all contact with Weaver must go through the Weaver's appointed attorney. In addition, Howson does not authorize further negotiations with Weaver directly as proposed by the marshals. October 21st, or excuse me, October 24th, Vicky gives birth uh, with all the government around them to a third daughter, Elisheba. Uh, Elisheba, of course, they named their daughter Elisheba. Right? If you're in a Zionist, uh, or if you're in a, a standoff with authorities because you believe in a Zionist government, you're not going to name your daughter Pam or Michelle. Six months later, on March 4th, 1992, Deputy U.S. Marshal Jack Clough, Chief Deputy Marshal Ron Evans, drive up to the Weaver property in an unmarked vehicle. The Weavers are still camped out. They're met by Randy, armed with a rifle. He tells Clough and Evans to get the fuck off his property. Right? Tells them they're trespassing. He's holding the gun. They leave without incident. <laughs> Again, so unnecessary. They're not coming up there to fuck. They're coming up there to get him to go to court because he's supposed to go to court. He's just needlessly endangering his family at this point. On March 8th, 92, a full year since the standoff began, a local Spokane newspaper, the Spokesman Review, publishes a front page article about Randy Weaver, snubbing his nose at the federal government, and the national media picks up the story and runs with it. March 27th, Acting Marshal Service Director Henry Hudson briefed on developments in the Weaver case. Hudson asked U.S. Attorney Maurice Ellsworth to consider dismissing the warrant and reissuing it under a seal. Ellsworth rejects this proposal. Hudson directs uh, that any plan to arrest Weaver must eliminate the possibility of harm to Vicki and the Weaver children. 
Marshal Service Enforcement Division Branch Chief Arthur Roderick is given the primary responsibility to, for devising a suitable plan to arrest Weaver. A three-phase operational plan is developed. Again, at this point, the U.S. government is trying their best to handle this situation peacefully, a situation entirely created by Randy Weaver and his family. All right, they're not picking on him. They're trying to arrest a man who refuses to come to court, who's been refusing for over a year now. Between April 2nd and April 12th, phase one of the operation plan, Operation Northern Exposure, is carried out by U.S. Marshals. The Marshals conduct surveillance on the property and determine technical requirements for additional surveillance. On April 13th, Acting Director Hudson approves the operation plan for phase two, during which surveillance cameras will be utilized to gather info about the family's daily actions so that options can be developed for phase three, the actual arrest of Randy. So much taxpayer money being devoted to arresting one stubborn shithead. And that pisses me off. I hate this waste of money. I hate that this fucker has been painted as some kind of patriotic hero by so many when all he did was waste a bunch of taxpayer money. So far, he just looks more like a domestic terrorist than a hero to me. I do not feel bad about the handy Randy jokes now. Uh, from April 17th through the first week of May, marshals install uh, surveillance cameras on ridges overlooking the Weaver property, uh, you know, getting more uh, intel. On April 18th, the marshal service is informed by uh, that a TV crew from Geraldo Rivera's program now can be told have been shot at while flying over the Weaver property in a helicopter. Uh, Weaver will deny this. The helicopter pro uh, pilot, Richard Weiss, eventually does give evidence to the FBI uh, denying this as well. On May 5th, one of the Marshal Service surveillance cameras is destroyed by Randy. Uh, what is he thinking? That this is all just going to go away, right? That he can win this fight? That he can just wait it out? Or is he thinking the apocalypse will come and just uh, deal with it? On May 27th, an undercover plan is developed by the Marshal Service now after acting director uh, Hudson rejects plans to forcibly arrest Weaver. So now they're abandoning their, their previous plan, right? They're not going to go with uh, phase three after all the surveillance and just ar arrest him with either lethal or, or non-lethal weapons. They're like, nope, let, let's be more patient. Now they come up with an undercover operation that will involve the Marshal Service buying a plot of land north of the Weaver property, then two deputy marshals, uh, will go undercover, pose as husband and wife, right? They'll visit, they'll develop the property, they'll start, they'll start to build a fucking cabin and hope that the opportunity to arrest uh, Weaver will arise, right? Out of the presence or outside the presence of other family members. This plan is put on hold pending Hudson's confirmation as director by, US, uh, by the U.S. Senate. The fact that this plan was even considered to me shows that the U.S. government went to great lengths and was willing to spend a lot of money to arrest one dude for refusing to show up to his court date. Way to make a mountain out of a molehill, Randy. Uh, the court of public opinion seems to see you as a victim. Uh, I do not. In early August of 92, Hudson gives the verbal approval to the undercover plan after being confirmed as Marshal Service Director. On August 17th, Deputy Marshals Deegan, Cooper, Roderick Norris, Thomas, and Hunt arrive in North Idaho to update intelligence for this undercover plan. Like they're actually gonna try and go through with this. Uh, the Ruby Ridge Command Post has now grown into its own little city. They have a bridge uh, that they had to build. They had to widen some roads to accommodate all the agents involved in this plan. On August 20th, 92, Deputy Marshals Roderick, Cooper, Deegan, and Hunt, along with some other uh, local marshals and deputy sheriffs, use a firing range west of Spokane, Washington, to test the weapons as part of uh, uh, you know internal marshal service practices. The final phase of Operation Northern Exposure begins on August 21st at 2.30 a.m., a marshal service team of Roderick, Cooper, Deacon, Hunt, Norris, and Thomas 
leave a condominium at Schweitzer Mountain to begin surveillance of the Weaver residence. At 4.30 a.m., the Marshal Service team arrives at the residence of neighbors Wayne and Ruth Rao, park their vehicle, and move to surveillance positions on Ruby Ridge. The team splits into two three-man teams at what was called the Y. The Observation Post, OP team, Hunt, Norris, and Thomas, go to the site above the Weaver compound, while the Reconnaissance, Recon team, Roderick, Cooper, and Deegan, proceed up the trail from a Y in the terrain toward the family's cabin. At 9 a.m., the Recon team joins the OP team at the Observation Post, above the cabin to discuss observations. The recon team then proceeds to an area 200 to 250 yards from the cabin where Roderick tosses rocks in the direction of the Weaver home. The rocks are meant to see if they will alert the Weaver's Labrador retrievers, and initially they don't. The recon team then moves to a garden springhouse area uh, below the cabin. Randy, Kevin, and Sammy are outside and armed. They're always armed at this point. Uh, Sammy Weaver is 14 years old. My son Kyler is 14, and the thought of him making patrol the family property with a loaded rifle in his hand while knowing that armed federal agents are patrolling the property because they want to arrest me makes me fucking sick. It bothers me so much. I would never do that to my son. A father is supposed to protect their family, protect their children, not recklessly endanger them. How dare Randy involve his innocent son in his delusional standoff? Fight your own fights. Right, I've bit my tongue numerous times when I've dealt with nonsense from some crazy individuals uh, doing a little harassment online towards me in part because I'm a public figure. Right, There's things I've wanted to say to them, things I've wanted to uh, email or whatever, and, and I haven't for the most part, mostly because I worry about retaliation, uh, not coming back towards me, but coming back towards my kids. I never mention my home address publicly or say what school my kids go to. Right, The least I can do is try and keep them safe You know, as much as we can in our kind of public world now. Randy didn't do any of this, man. He didn't seem to give any thoughts to the welfare of his family about keeping them safe during that. Neither did Vicky. 10 a.m., while the recon team gets ready to leave the Garden Spring House area, Norris at the observation post, radios that a vehicle is approaching, the weavers are responding. Then one of the dogs, Stryker, picks up one of the marshal's scents and the dog is now on their trail. This is where shit starts to go real south. The recon team starts to retreat through the woods towards a fern field while now being pursued by Kevin Harris and Stryker. As the recon team passes the fern field, proceeding towards the Y, 14-year-old Sammy is seen with Harris and the dog in pursuit as well. And again, how dare Randy not call off his fucking son? He's knowingly putting him in harm's way. To describe what happens next, we turn to an account given uh, to, uh, by the author of the main source book we used for, for this portion of the suck, Ruby Ridge by Jess Walter. Best rated book we could find. The New York Times reviewed it as uh, having done a stunning job of reporting. Jess is a critically acclaimed author who grew up and lives nearby in Spokane, Washington. So thank you, Jess, for giving us such a great source to lean on. And of course, we used a ton of other sources, but uh, 10.30 a.m. With the dog putting the agents on retreat, Roderick uh, thinks they can take cover, slides behind a tree, looks back up the hill where he sees Stryker, the dog, Kevin Harris running behind the big yellow lab, breaking over the top of the hill, about 100 yards away, aiming straight for him. He realizes uh, this could all go down right now, but he also hopes that they can still get away without a gunfight. Torn with adrenaline and fear, the deputies now run alongside a logging road uh, from one stand of trees to another. Twigs, branches are cracked under their steps. They stop and turn several times, covering each other, hoping the dog will turn back. Instead, the dog is gaining. The weavers uh, usually would stop at the rock outcropping. Why were they coming further down the hill now? We have to take this dog out, Roderick said. He's leading everybody to us. Over his shoulder, Cooper sees flashes of yellow between the trees, shadows of movement behind the dog that he takes for people. 
ahead. He realizes they're going to have to run through a clearing before they reach the next stand of trees. They're going to be, you know, wide open uh, toward, you know, for fire from above. They're going to be sitting ducks. He thinks he and his buddies might not be able to get away without a firefight. This is bullshit, he says into his radio headset. We're going to run down the trail and then get shot in the back. We need to get into the woods. The dog is barking, still chasing him. The marshals fan out, stop in the woods, breathing heavily, listen for the rustling of brush and timber, right? They're bouncing down the hill, shuffling sideways, taking turns as uh, last in line, covering the retreat of the others. Cooper tells the others to go ahead a little bit and he'll take care of the dog if it gets too close. He has a nine millimeter machine gun with a silencer. He hopes the weavers won't hill, won't hear his shots if he has to take the dog out. Roderick and Deegan make it to some canopy uh, to a canopy tree line while Cooper continues running sidestep, keeping an eye on the trees while he hears the dog barking and the crackle of men running behind him. Then it all seems to go down at once. Cooper sees someone on the higher trail, the trail above them, and the realization that they had fallen into an ambush hits him. He yells at the man on the upper trail, back off, U.S. Marshal. Roderick sees him too, yells at him. Cooper hears the dog bark, turns, sees it growling at him. He points his rifle at the dog, but then it runs right past him towards Roderick. Uh, Cooper does not see the dog. When he looks back at the trail, Randy Weaver is now running away. In his peripheral vision, Cooper sees Deegan duck into the woods, and so he runs behind him. 30 or 40 feet inside the tree line, Deegan jumps uh, behind a big stump. Near him, Cooper spies a hole protected by a rock. He dives into it. The dog is still barking. Kevin, dressed all in black, Sammy in jeans and a flannel shirt, walking along the trail, coming closer to him. From his stump, Deegan sees Kevin and Sam. Uh, Sam is the same age as his youngest boy. He sees him walk right past him. When the boys are past, Cooper relaxes a little, thinking they might be safe. They might get away without a firefight. And then several things happen in rapid succession. The dog moves towards Roderick. Deegan rises on his knee to identify himself. And in a thicket of who shot first stories, both sides agree that everything went to hell. It hits Randy as he runs back towards the cabin. Uh, they run smack uh, into a Zionist-occupied government ambush. That's what he's thinking. Right? He's been at the fork in the logging road when a man covered head to toe in camouflage had stepped out behind a tree and yelled something at him. Fuck you, Randy had yelled back. He run about 80 yards back up the road towards the cabin when he hears the first shots. Sharp cracks echoing through the timber. Sammy and Kevin are down there, he thinks. Sam, Kevin, get home. He fires around into the air from his 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun. He loads another shell, but he's too eager, pushes it too far, and jams the shotgun. He draws his 9mm handgun, squeezes off three more rounds. Sam, Kevin. He hears his son's voice. I'm coming, dad. Then there's more shots he hears from down the hill. Someone yells. There's a burst in all directions. Uh, you know, Kevin Harris wheels and fires his 30-06, hitting 42-year-old Deputy U.S. Marshal Billy Deegan square in the chest. Larry Cooper sees his friend knocked back, sees his arm fly up. He lays a line of fire right back at Kevin Harris, who falls like a sack of potatoes. He hears Deegan yell, Coop, Coop, I need you. I'll be there, Billy, as soon as I can get him off her ass. Hang with me. He squeezes a switch on his hand, calls for Roderick in the radio. Get up here, Artie. Billy's been hit. But Roderick has his own problems just down the trail. The dog has run up to him. Roderick has shot it now in the back so it won't lead the family to him. And then 14-year-old Sammy appears in front of him, sees that he has shot his dog striker and allegedly yells, you son of a bitch. And then Sammy, overcome with anger, begins to fire at Marshal Roderick. What a fucking mess. Another round of fire seems to come from the woods and Roderick dives and bounces, feeling something graze his stomach just as a bullet tears through his shirt, comes within a breath of hitting his chest. Then according to one former officer on the scene, as Sammy turns to run away, he is shot multiple times in the back. Deputy Marshal Deegan and Sammy Weaver would both die from their gunshot wounds. 
all because the weavers just refused to obey the fucking law. Upon hearing the shots, the OP team runs through the woods to assist the recon team and are fired upon when running from the fern field to the Y. None of the marshals are aware at this point that Sammy Weaver has been shot and killed. At 10.45 a.m., Hunt and Thomas leave the Y to go to the Rao house to call for assistance. Roderick, Cooper, and Norris stay with Deegan's body. At 11.20 a.m., Hunt makes a 911 emergency call to the Boundary County Sheriff's Office in Bonners Ferry. At 11.40 a.m., the Marshall Service Crisis Center is activated under the director of Duke Smith, Associate Director for Operations. The Marshall Service Special Operations Group, SOG, is alerted to deploy. Hunt reports to the crisis center that the surveillance team came under fire from occupants of the Weaver compound and that they are still pinned down under fire in defensive positions. At 1.30 p.m. in Washington, D.C., Marshal Service Director Hudson, other Marshal Service officials meet with the FBI Associate Deputy Director Douglas Gow and FBI Assistant Director Larry Potts to discuss the response to the shooting and the Marshal's predicament on Ruby Ridge. In the late afternoon, Assistant Director Potts orders the FBI hostage rescue team, HRT, to be deployed to Ruby Ridge. The team is, uh, this team is basically a group of the world's most badass snipers. A marshal has been killed. They're done fucking around with the Weavers on Ruby Ridge. At 6.30 p.m., HRT Commander Richard Rogers and the advanced team of HRT personnel depart for Idaho, accompanied by Marshal Service Director of Operations Duke Smith. While en route, Rogers has a series of conversations with Assistant Director Potts uh, and Deputy Assistant Director Carlson about proposed, about proposed rules of engagement. At 1 p.m., the Idaho State Police Critical Response Team, the CRI, uh, the CRT, excuse me, is, form, is informed of the incident and proceeds to form a command post near the Rao House. At 8.30 p.m., the Idaho State Police CRT leaves the command post to rescue Deputy Marshals Roderick Cooper and Norris and, uh, you know, and get the body of Marshal Deegan. At 9.30 p.m., FBI Special Agent in Charge Gene Glenn arrives at the command post at Ruby Ridge. Glenn assumes overall responsibility for the FBI operations at Ruby Ridge. Meanwhile, U.S. Marshal Michael Johnson has notified U.S. Attorney Ellsworth of the shooting at Ruby Ridge. Ellsworth sends Ron Howen to Ruby Ridge to act as U.S. Attorney's representative. He arrives at Ruby Ridge late in the evening. At 1 a.m., Idaho State Police CRT arrives back at the command post, brings with it the three deputy marshals and the body of deceased Deputy Marshal Deegan. The other marshals are then taken to the Boundary County Hospital for examination, then are taken back to their condominium at Schweitzer Mountain, arriving at approximately 3 a.m. Sometime in the afternoon, FBI agents interview the marshals involved in the August 21st incident. A criminal complaint is filed, charging Weaver and Harris with the murder of Deputy Deegan. At 4.45, the HRT team arrives in Idaho. At 9 a.m., the HR team commander, Dick Rogers, briefs HRT members from a National Guard armory in Bonners Ferry. The rules of engagement for this mission are being changed, are still being drafted, at 10.30 a.m., the HRT and SOG are assembling a new operations plan. The whole buying some neighboring land, pretending to be locals, building a cabin, hoping Randy swings by on his lonesome, that plan's fucking dead. Right, that ended the second an agent was shot. At 2.40 p.m., the operations plan, including new rules of engagement, are sent to FBI headquarters and the Marshal Service for review. The new rules of engagement give the snipers more freedom than is uh, standard with FBI policy and unprecedented domestic action in FBI history. These rules basically state if any adult is armed, it is okay to shoot and kill them. And at risk of pissing off some federal libertarian type listeners, I do not disagree with these rules in this particular case at this particular point. 
The weavers, in my opinion, have taken shit way too far, way too far. If anything, they've been given way too many chances to end this peacefully. You know, I can't stress this enough. All Randy has had to do was turn himself in. He's had so many fucking chances, right? He would have been found guilty of a weapons charge, served very little time, if any, thanks to having no prior record. The Weavers could have kept living their insane, anti-government, virally racist, you know, kill them all and bring about the apocalypse, shitty backwoods lives. Between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m., the HRT sniper observers uh, briefed on approved rules of engagement, or are briefed on those. They depart on foot to observation posts on the mountain. From 5.07 to 5.22 p.m., the HRT sniper observation team uh, arrives at their positions on the ridge overlooking the Weaver cabin. Uh, Meanwhile, Randy has discovered that his son is dead from Kevin, who returns to the cabin. They go back out to get the boy, bring him to a guest home they had on the property to clean his wounds. As Randy uh, has his hands up on his head, above his head, uh, you know, on the building in his grief, uh, an HRT sniper, Lou Haruchi, fires around that wounds Randy through the armpit. Uh, Randy, wounded, is able to make his way back to his cabin with Kevin, the main cabin. As Randy and Kevin are returning home, Vicky appears at the main door to greet them, distraught over the loss of her son and now wounded husband. She's holding her 10-month-old baby daughter, uh, Elisheba, when at approximately 5.58 p.m., Haruchi fires a round through Vicky's head, just missing the baby. The bullet also wounds Kevin Harris in his shoulder, breaking two ribs, stopping just inches from his heart. Initially, uh, Haruchi does not realize he shoots Vicky in the head. I do, of course, wish this shot had not been fired. She was not holding a gun. I'm sure the agent wishes he could take it back as well. She was not armed. She was holding a baby. Not sure why they couldn't just wait for a better shot on Randy or Kevin and left Vicky alone at this moment. Uh, Haruchi also, again, does not realize Vicky's been killed. Uh, 6.30 p.m., an APC, an armed personnel carrier, arrives at the cabin area. The FBI hostage negotiator delivers uh, a message over loudspeaker that there are arrest warrants for Randy and Kevin. Asks Weaver to please accept negotiations uh, by telephone for his, you know, uh, turning himself in. At 8 p.m., HRT sniper observer teams and SOG personnel are withdrawn from their mountain posts because of the cold weather. During the evening, FBI SWAT teams are deployed around the command post and control access to the road leading in and out of the Weaver cabin. There are masses of people, media surrounding the area, demanding info on what's going on. Many are neighbors. Others are coming from far away, supporting the anti-government and or Aryan cause they see Randy is standing for. Some are yelling things to law enforcement officers like, you are a traitor to your race. They're holding signs about Zog and about the New World Order. It's a fucking circus. It's madness. A lot of people focus on all the uh, government personnel and weapons that made it to Ruby Ridge and frame it as the uh, government abusing its power. But what they seem to fail to recognize is that the government did not send a bunch of firepower up to Ruby Ridge on day one or day two or day 365. They gave them well over a year to just go to court, but they couldn't do that. Why? Because they were crazy. They thought the government was part of a New World Order conspiracy part of a Zionist plot to destroy Christianity. At 6 a.m. on August 23rd, the HRT teams are sent back to their positions on the mountain. They arrive there about 7.30. HRT Commander Rogers takes two teams of HRT personnel to the Weaver Cabin area, makes repeat announcements over the bullhorn uh, for those inside to enter into negotiations. No response is given, which makes me hate Randy that much more. His son is dead. His wife is dead. He still has three daughters on that ridge, three daughters who are very much alive, and he doesn't do fuck all to protect them right now. 
At 8.01 p.m., APCs, armored personnel carriers, are used to demolish outbuildings near the Weaver cabin. Right during the clearing of a shed uh, before being destroyed, the body of Sammy Weaver is found. None of the officers knew that Sammy had died. Only the family knew. Soon everyone would know, and the fury of the crowd and the people watching around the world would intensify. Uh, I hate that Randy now gets to be painted as a victim. Meanwhile, Harris is charged with Deegan's murder and Weaver is charged with lesser crimes. The next day, August 24th, negotiations to try and make contact with Randy Weaver uh, are made using a loudspeaker. Unaware that Vicky has been shot and killed, they address Vicky Weaver for the first time. They ask if she will let her kids have pancakes and come out of the cabin. No response from her, of course, is heard. Uh, and then something super weird happens on the 24th as well. Apparently a robotic vehicle with a gun and its robot claw are sent in on the 24th. Uh, the robot tries to take a telephone into the Weaver home. Randy will not open the door. He is sure that uh, this robot is some sign of the apocalypse. The next day on the 25th, negotiators continue to focus efforts on surrender. Efforts include statements directed specifically at Vicki Weaver. Again, no response is heard from the cabin. The Weaver family will later claim that they yelled back, you killed her. 10.53 a.m. on the following day, the rules of engagement that were in effect since the arrival of the HRT are now revoked. At the direction of Glenn, the FBI's standard deadly force policy replaces the new rules of engagement to guide law enforcement personnel deployed on cabin perimeter concerning the use of deadly force. At approximately 3 p.m., uh, the first contact is made with Randy. He says he wants to talk to his sister, Marnus Joy. Marnus attempts to speak with Randy Weaver the next day, but is unsuccessful at getting him to come out and surrender. The next day, again, on the 28th, further attempts by Marnus Joy are made to speak with Weaver and negotiate a sur uh, surrender, also unsuccessful. He's a stubborn bastard. So now the FBI decides to bring in a famous name in the Patriot movement at the time, war hero Colonel Bo Gritz, a decorated Vietnam vet associated with right-wing causes. He's brought in to try and negotiate a surrender. Uh, this was a dude who was running for president in 1992 under the slogan, God, Guns, and Grits. Someone who clearly spoke Randy's language. Uh, let's take a moment to meet Bo Gritz. I heard so much about this dude growing up. Uh, a lot of my dad's friends love this dude and were voting for him. Uh, there's many places you can learn about Gritz. One of those places is at the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's website under Fighting Hate. Uh, he is considered an extremist and a racist. The SPLC has recently been called out by uh, many right and center-leading people as a hate group themselves, but for decades, they have been the best authority on hate in the U.S. I personally think they've done a damn fine job of exposing hate groups. Uh, Gritz has been described as a supposed inspiration for, for Sylvester Stallone's character in the original Rambo movie, First Blood. Uh, Gritz uh, has dedicated himself for decades to denouncing the New World Order. Uh, he's trained an army of anointed eternal warriors in the battle against evil that resides in high places, according to Gritz. And I do have enormous respect for him as a soldier, grateful for his service. That being said, he also seems completely insane. He's a big doomsday Zionist guy as well. Uh, for years, Bo has traveled uh, the country offering a series of well-attended paramilitary training sessions under the acronym SPIKE, specially prepared individuals for key events. In these, uh, you know, uh, sessions, in the pricey 12-part Spike video series, he also sells, uh, he teaches people skills he learned in Vietnam and elsewhere, from close quarters combat to field interrogation techniques. He wants to prepare you for the New World Order invasion. He's been saying could happen any day now for about 30 years, which, as you know, has not happened. Uh, thousands of men and women have emerged from his elaborate training seminars with the know-how to fight war. Many have gone on to join the violence-prone wings of the extremist anti-government movements. Bogritz is a war hero uh, who you could also make the argument has turned into a domestic terrorist trainer. 
Now back to Ruby Ridge. 5.15 p.m. on August 28th, 92, Weaver agrees to talk to Bo. At 6.58, Bo enters the Weaver compound. He speaks with Randy at the cabin. He advises him that the FBI and other law enforcement uh, are, you know, are coming for him. He also, you know, finds out that Vicky has been killed and tells the FBI and law enforcement that. Also tells him that Kevin Harris has been wounded and is not doing well. The following day, August 29th, Gritz and a family friend, Jackie Brown, speak with Randy again, as well as his daughters uh, and the wounded Kevin Harris. At 5.07 p.m., Jackie Brown enters the Weaver cabin. This family friend uh, gives, uh, Randy gives her a letter that the family wrote in case they were killed. I can only imagine what this letter said. Dear Zionist overlords, Handy Randy and Sticky Vicky here. Good job, you did it. You killed us. Congrats on getting rid of two more good Christians, you Jewish satanic bastards. I hope you're happy with yourself. I hope all this was worth burning in hell for all of eternity. Goddamn, you fucking subhuman mud people. Why couldn't you just let us do what we wanted? Follow only the laws we choose to. Spend our days in peace. Go into super racist Aryan Nation cookouts. Training ourselves to be militias members who are going to help overthrow the corrupt American government. Uh, Weaver friend Jackie Brown also allowed to clean the kitchen of Vicky's blood when she comes into the Weaver cabin. At 9.10 p.m., she tells law enforcement that Harris is close to death. August 30th, the following morning, Harris, who is about to die, decides to surrender after talking with Gritz and Jack McLam, a retired police officer, assisting Gritz. Bull warns Randy that if he does not let Harris out of the cabin to be treated for his rapidly worsening wounds, that he and the world will hold Randy responsible for Kevin's death. Okay, I'm liking Mr. Gritz a little bit more right now. I still think he's crazy. But even another member of this crazy ideology seems to realize that Randy is responsible for some of the shit. At 6.27 p.m., Jackie Brown and Bo Gritz carry Vicki Weaver's body out from the cabin. After delivering the body, Jackie Brown returns into the cabin to clean uh, blood off the floor. The following day, Gritz is told by the rescue, rescue team commander, Dick Rogers, that if Bo can't talk them out, we will take them out. At 9.40 a.m., Randy McLam returned to the cabin to begin more negotiations. Randy tells uh, his girls that he believes they will be okay and that they're going to get out alive. Now is their chance. He begs Randy to surrender. Finally, Randy and his children do so. Over the next few days, uh, so he, you know, he surrenders on August 31st, and over the next few days, uh, searches of the Weaver cabin, grounds, and outbuildings are conducted under the supervision of the FBI. On September 16th, the grand jury indicts Kevin Harris and Randy Weaver for assault and murder of Deputy Marshal Deegan. The next day, Weaver pleads not guilty to aiding and abetting Deputy Marshal Deegan's murder. The day after that, Harris pleads innocent to murdering Deputy Marshal Deegan. On October 1st, a grand jury returns with a 10-count indictment against Weaver and Harris, adding a conspiracy count, amongst others, to earlier charges. On April 13, 93, the Harris-Weaver trial begins in federal court in Boise, Idaho. Jury selection begins for the murder conspiracy trial. Uh, uh, and then on July 8th, the trial is over, and the jury acquits Weaver and Harris for the murder of Deputy Deegan. The federal government could not prove that Weaver and Harris were not acting in self-defense. Harris is also acquitted of all other charges against him. Weaver is convicted on count three, failure to appear in court, and count nine, committing an offense while on release. He's found not guilty of the other counts. Weaver is incarcerated pending sentencing, and then on October 18th, he's sentenced to 18 months, 14 of which he's already served, three years of probation, and he receives a $10,000 fine uh, for his conviction for failure to appear and for committing an offense while on release. After that, after all that has happened, Right? After all this happened because he wouldn't show up for a charge that sent him in the end to prison for 18 months. Right? I can only imagine if he would have went initially, he would have gotten even uh, less trouble. 
right? And then his wife and son would still be alive. It's so crazy. December of 93, Weaver is released from incarceration. In August of the following year, Weaver and Kevin Harris file a $300 million civil lawsuit against the U.S. government for the wrongful deaths of Sammy and Vicki Weaver. The following year in August of 95, the Justice Department agrees to pay Weaver $3.1 million in compensation for killing his wife and son. Randy receives $100,000. Each of his daughters get a million each. Or each of his daughters get a million. And I, and I got to say, this bothers me. Randy created this mess and now he's getting paid for it. The government did not force him to arm his young son and send him to war against the government. Randy did that. And he did that because he was a racist, conspiratorial maniac, right? And so was his wife. They both recklessly endangered their kids' lives because of their belief in this ignorant shit. I feel sorry for the daughters because they didn't choose to be involved in this situation. Their parents did. I think it's bullshit that Randy got a fucking dime from the government for any of this. In the fall of 95, Weaver says, if I had to do it again, oh, uh, knowing what I know now, I would have come down from the mountain for the court appearance. Yeah, you fucking think? I would not let my fears and the fears of my family keep me from coming down, but my wrongs did not cause federal agents to commit crimes. I have been accountable for my choices, but no federal agent has been brought to justice for the killings of Sam and Vicki Weaver. And I don't like this half apology. In, in my opinion, Randy Weaver, if you're listening, the blood is on your hands. You picked this fight. You put your family in position for this to happen. You turned a 14-year-old into an armed guard and sent him to war with the federal government. You did that. and You never took responsibility. In 1996, Weaver, now viewed as a hero in the Northwest militia culture, teamed up with Bo Gritz and offered to help end another standoff between the Montana Freeman and the FBI. Their offers to help were declined. Of course they were. They're fucking crazy. Uh, in 2000, Randy Weaver visits the site of the former Branch Davidian uh, Church in Waco, Texas, a new church was being built at the time of Weaver's visit. He let it be known that he supported the assertion that the government agents deliberately uh, took things too far in Waco, right? And provoked uh, the compound, set the complex on fire. And then, you know, when the government did mess up there, we've been over that. But again, you know, uh, the government didn't make uh, David Koresh molest kids in that compound. In September of 2000, despite federal officials voting or vowing that they would never pay someone who had killed a U.S. Marshal after persistent appeal, Kevin Harris is awarded a $380,000 settlement from the U.S. government. And, uh, and that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, what a mess. Uh, after living in this research for a few days, you know, I, I just having a hard time seeing uh, Randy and Vicki Weaver as patriots, right? I, I just... I don't know how people can see them as anything but domestic terrorists who needlessly endangered the lives uh, of their four children, stubbornly persisted in a standoff that stemmed out of refusing to take responsibility and go to court for a weapons charge. Randy would later be found guilty of. And what was that weapon charge related to? It was related to wanting to go to war with the U.S. government. That is what a terrorist does, right? They're hanging out in the Aryan Nations compound around other people who wanted to take a race war to the U.S. government. Right? I mean, the motivation to resist that court date stemmed from a complete lack of respect for the government, uh, for law enforcement, for law. R Randy and Vicky were delusional racists who believed that it was satanic to be Jewish. They regularly associated, again, with Richard Butler's, you know, uh, skinheads, a, a group of people who believe that all non-whites are subhuman mud people. Randy went from a member of the military to someone who had no respect for the military, no respect for law enforcement, no respect for the law. I mean, just how ironic 
uh, that far-right extremists consider him to be a patriot when he hated America. I, I think he still does. Today, he's 72 years old, believed to be living in or near Kalispell, Montana. He won't give interviews anymore. Based on the most re recent interviews I could find, he seems to see, still see himself as a victim, the recipient of the abuse dished out by a tyrannical government. When he was interviewed about a decade after the standoff, when he returned to live to Iowa for a time, Weaver was asked what he thought about Timothy McVeigh's execution for Timothy's murderous role in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Weaver said that, quote, there should be a bunch of federal agents lying right beside him on a gurney. He said that the real enemy, the federal government, was still at large. He said that the real enemy continues to violate the Constitution. He said that Timothy McVeigh, the dude who killed 168 innocent people, including 19 children, was just trying to make a point. He said he was going to be judge, jury, and executioner no different than the federal government. One has a badge and one don't. What a delusional asshole. The U.S. government has done a lot of bad things. However, they've done a lot more good things. You know, we hear about cases of police brutality, police violence, abuses of power, right? Those things happen. They make the news and they become big stories. What we don't hear about are all the times a cop or a marshal or an FBI agent keeps someone safe by stopping an act of terrorism or arresting someone who should be arrested because those stories aren't sexy but they happen every single day over and over again. Every single day, officers in every state in the nation protect society by arresting bad people for doing bad things and will never know how many lives they've saved by doing so. I might only be alive right now because some dirtbag I've never met got arrested and got put behind bars and was never able to do whatever he or she was going to do to me, my wife, or my kids, or you and yours. Do you ever think about things like that? Does the government waste some of our tax dollars? Of course. Could some reforms make our great country even better? Could, could money be more effectively spent? Of course. I could armchair politician all day and think up ways that my mind would improve the average American citizen's quality of life. Should we keep our eyes on the government and help make sure they don't abuse the great power they wield? Of course. But all that being said, I, I do not believe, like the Weavers did, that at its heart, the U.S. government is some evil, corrupt empire. And if they hadn't deliberately set themselves on a path to confront and defy this evil, corrupt regime, they would still be alive. I get not wanting to be told what to do by other humans. I really do. I don't like rules. I hate being bossed around. I hate being told what to do. But, you know, we, we live in a world of loss. So, so you know, you're going to be better off if you try and follow them. And if you don't, you get busted, you go to court. I don't, I don't follow all the laws. You know, weed's not legal in Idaho. I do it. I use it anyway. And if I get busted, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to fucking court. You know, I might also start a petition to change the laws or legally protest. I'm going to for sure talk shit about how dumb anti-weed laws are on this podcast and in my standup. Uh, what I'm not going to do is hold up with my family in the house and let authorities know that they're not taking me without an armed fucking fight. Because that is ridiculous. That is the, those are the actions of a maniac. So, so don't be a maniac. And don't think Randy Weaver is anything uh, but a maniac. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, there were around 400 law enforcement of, uh, officials called in from all over the country to deal with Randy, his wife, his kids, and a family friend. A lot of taxpayer money, millions of dollars spent on one dude who didn't want to face his criminal charges. Number two, the government did make some mistakes. When it came to handling this situation, at least one BI, excuse me, at least one FBI agent maybe got a little too trigger happy. 
the government did end up paying over $3 million to the Weavers for basically using excessive force in this engagement. Number three, believing that Armageddon is coming soon has made exactly zero people's lives better. So don't believe that. Number four, Randy Weaver refused to leave his property for roughly a year and a half to avoid going to court. And then after the whole mess you heard about today, he had to go to court. So go to court. It's not the 1920s anymore. You don't get to sneak across state lines and hide out from the coppers and then start a new life. You get caught. And number five, new info, kind of. I believe I've mentioned this before, but I can't find it in my old notes after a bit of searching. Uh, I want to make it clear that the Aryan Nation's compound that Randy and his family visited is no longer in North Idaho. Uh, its founder, Richard Butler, died in 2004 at the age of 86, lived a long, hateful life. And the compound was lost before he died. In 2000, Victorian Jason Keenan, an American Indian mother and son, were harassed at gunpoint by Aryan Nation's security guards. They went on to successfully sue Butler in the compound, represented by local attorney Norm Gissel and Morris D's Montgomery, Alabama-based Southern Poverty Law Center, they won a combined civil judgment of $6.3 million from Butler and from the Aryan Nation's members who attacked him. And Butler was forced to give his racist anti-government compound to the Keenans. They sold it to the Carr Foundation, who then gave it to the North Idaho College Foundation. And all of the compound's buildings were torn down and the land became just a beautiful slice of forest once again. That land was put up for sale to raise endowment money recently for North uh, Idaho College, and it was not sold to skinheads. So please know that North Idaho has changed. We have had our share of nuts, uh, but we are also no longer the land of Ruby Ridge and the Aryan nations. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Ruby Ridge sucked. I have a feeling that's going to piss off some people with this one. You know what? I looked at it. These are the conclusions I came to. And, and I'm just glad I know a lot more about a topic that, has been, that was brought up so many times around me in my youth. Uh, I'm sure it's going to come up again in some future conversation with a relative of mine. And uh, I, I'm sure we're not going to agree. And I, I'm sure that I'm going to be able to speak a lot more intelligently about it than I used to be able to. Uh, it reminds me of the Killdozer tale. Joe and I were talking about that before the recording. Right? You look online, you read the YouTube comments, and man, just a, a lot of people want to read into some of these stories just desperately want these people to be martyrs and, and just diehard patriots. And that's not true, man. Somebody who just doesn't want to follow the law to me, how is that a fucking patriot? It's a fucking terrorist. Uh, big thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Reverend Dr. Paisley, the Bit Elixir app design crew, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com, and the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Check out the Cold Curious uh, private Facebook group if you want to make some new friends. Thank you to the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, for being a kick-ass administrator. Over 16,000 meat sacks to meet in there. Hail Nimrod. Thank you to the all-seeing eyes of the Cult helping Liz, Ellie Darling, Robbie Erickson, Megan Howell, Danny Ryan, Jacob Carey, and Juan Carlos Ramirez Darius. Also, the Time Suck Discord channel via the Time Suck app has over 5,200 diehard suckers being goofy over there. Keep growing. Keep growing. Uh, thank you, Beefsteak, for doing so much to keep Discord weird and fun and for sending some friends out to say hi to me in D.C. Uh, next week, we have a topic that may, as I write this, also win the next Spaces vote. Harold Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death, a British doctor who killed over 200 of his patients before his arrest in 1998. He initially thrived as a family practitioner before allegedly becoming addicted to painkillers. He forged prescriptions to large amounts of the drug. Uh, you know, he was for, uh, forced to uh, leave the practice when he was caught by medical colleagues in 1975. 
at which time he entered a rehab program. In the subsequent inquiry, he received a small fine and conviction for forgery. A few uh, years later, he was back to doctrine. And then a few years after that, a local undertaker noticed that Dr. Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate and exhibited similar poses in death. Most were fully clothed, usually sitting or reclining. Dr. Shipman convinced the undertaker there was nothing to worry about, but in fact, there was a lot to worry about. Dr. Shipman would go on killing for many, many years after this undertaker became initially suspicious. And then you know what happened? Well, you have to find out on next Monday. Find out next Monday on another true crime edition of Time Suck. Now let's get to the uh, emails many of you have been kind enough to send in for today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First up, Eric Super Sucker Graham, no stranger to being a victim of Cummins Law. Uh, Eric writes, Dear Suckmaster, holy shit, I learned about a new way Cummins Law can screw you. I was making a delivery to one of those large family chain, uh, large chain family hotels. The head of receiving is this really cool guy. And after talking to him for a bit, I thought, yeah, might be time to spread the suck. I started talking about the Brothers Grimm episode. He was a few, huge fan of them growing up, sweet. So I casually asked if he had heard the story about the children in the slaughter. He said no. So excitedly, I decided to share it with him. Well, right as I got to the part about the kid getting his throat cut, this woman probably in her 20s walks right past us. I don't see her at first. I had my back to her. She didn't fully turn around, but I definitely got a look from her. And then she kept walking. Yeep. Not a good one to walk in on. It wasn't like I could apologize and explain it. How would that sound? Oh, sorry, miss. I was retelling a story from a book about children, uh, uh, about children killing another kid. But don't worry, it was all just a game. Ha ha. Well, I hope you enjoyed my tale. So far, I'm still employed with my company, so that's a plus. Uh, also, recently at work, I made a mention about how I didn't want it to deliver. Uh, how I didn't want to deliver to a Polish person. When I was asked why <laughs> by a fellow employee. I caught myself trying to explain and then just said, oh, I was just kidding. Man, you've got a hold of me. Uh, man, I guess so, Eric. I'm making uh, you look as crazy to other people as I look to other people. And then Eric wrote, P.S. We met in December or we met in Denver back in November. Jesus. And I asked about the guy that had the sick baby. That update that broke so many of our hearts. I was curious if you guys have an update to him or his family. Uh, seriously, Dan, everyone at Time Suck, thanks for all you do. You've created something magical. Praise be to Triple M, Nimrod, definitely Lucifina, and to you guys. Love to you all and to my fellow cult members. Keep on sucking. Eric, foot in my mouth, Graham. Thanks, Eric. Man, I appreciate what you said so much. Uh, no, no update on Adam's situation uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, I, I'm going to hope that no news is good news. I'm not going to intrude on him and ask. I'm sure you understand about that. Um, but if we uh, if we hear something, we, we will let everybody know. So hail Nimrod and uh, try not to get fired. Be careful. Uh, top shelf meat sack, Michael Avilia, or Via, uh, or Avila, Avila, Avia, uh, now writes in with a reminder to be constantly vigilant. Michael writes, good pre-evening, pre-evening, suck team. I just finished the Girl Scout cookie murders. <laughs> Girl Scout cookie murders, sorry. That is maybe, uh, I don't think that you probably meant to write it that way. The, yes, I'm a little behind since I lost uh, my car, but I'm catching up. I wanted to address the things children hear and see. About two months ago, my girls told me they were being watched while they slept. My initial response was less than fatherly. I said, how can you tell if someone's watching you sleep if you're asleep? They then told me that they'd seen a man outside their window. Again, I didn't believe him. I told him to go back to bed. The kid's room is downstairs and their window is in our gated backyard where I left my dog out. Because the room is downstairs, it's also halfway underground, which means their window is at uh, ground level. So it's easy for me to brush it off 
as uh, them just seeing the dog outside or whatever. A month and a half goes by with nothing else happening. But then one night, my dog starts growling, barking, and snarling at the window downstairs in the laundry area. My little brother runs downstairs to see the dog, and then he sees the guy's feet outside the window. This was about 6 p.m. It gets dark pretty early around this time in Colorado Springs. We ran outside to see if we could catch this guy standing outside the window, but he had taken off down the street and disappeared. Had my dog been able to break the window, she probably would have eaten him. The kids have been sleeping on the living room since uh, then, and I moved cameras to see the outside of the house better. I now keep both my porch lights on at night, and I'm constantly checking my locks. After listening to the Girl Scout murders, I realized I would have done what those counselors did. My kids told me about a guy a couple months ago, and I wrote it off as nothing but my dog, uh, and then confirmed it with my own uh, eyes a month and a half later that they were right. I haven't been able to stop thinking about how I ignored their words and then that it could have been their last words because of what uh, was going on. It's a scary world we meet sacks live in, but it will be a cold day in Nimrod's butthole before I let someone hurt my children. I understand where the, ch- the counselors could have easily written off a child's claim because I did that with my own girls. But I can assure you, I will check every claim they make from now on. It was a real wake-up call. As annoying as false claim could be, I don't want to write the one real claim off when it could be their last. I know it's a long email, but I had to share my tale and spread the word. Heed your children's claims. One day, it could be real, and I'd hate to see it in the news. Hail Nimrod and keep on sucking. Yes, scary shit, Michael. And I think I would have done the same thing, you know, initially as well. Uh, Not now, though. Not after uh, that suck and not after, you know, messages like this. Great reminder to uh, be a little extra vigilant because you never know. I think about that more after the Joseph Duncan suck as well. Best to take fewer chances. Most people are good. I believe that very much. But the small minority that are not good, man, they can be so very, very bad. And because of those bad assholes, the rest of us need to watch our backs and watch after each other. So thank you for sending that in. Time sucker extraordinaire, uh, Varak Lee, now has a powerful personal connection to share about last week's Khmer Rouge suck. Barack writes, Hey, Sir Sucker of Time, I just wanted to say thank you for educating people about that asshole Pol Pot in the killing fields of Cambodia. My mother was a kid there during all this chaos. She is still traumatized by it to this day. My mom would tell me things she had witnessed and it would blow my mind on how ruthless these Khmer Rouge fuckers were. They gave no shits about human life. They murdered my mom's sister and her kids and also starved my grandpa to death. She once told me she saw these soldiers who were helping this lady give birth to a child, then threw her baby in the air and bayoneted the baby after it was delivered. Fuck. Uh, She also told me that she remembers the smell of a bunch of dead bodies burning when she was in a little village area she had to stay in. These guys were sick in the head. They would even kick my mom's food over onto the dirt and laugh at my mom while calling her names. When the Khmer Rouge were coming to an end, they had my mother run into the jungle and then they shot at her. Bullets whizzed past her and others who had also been running with her. While running, she was hit in the shoulder. It knocked her down, but then she got up and kept running until she got to Thailand. In Thailand, she became a refugee and then eventually was sponsored to come to the States. Sorry for the long essay, but love what you're doing with Time Suck. Hope you have a great day and fuck communism. Holy shit, Varak, man, that is intense. Your mom is strong to power through all of that. I hope her life is amazing right now. Please give her a big hug from me and the team. Tell her how much we love her. Of course she's traumatized. And what the fuck did any of that have to do with farming, by the way, right? How did all that cruelty come out of Pol Pot's supposed wish to have people live simpler, happier agrarian lives? That guy was such an epic piece of shit. Anyone who thinks Pol Pot was anything but a piece of shit needs to have their head checked. Uh, Glad you're enjoying the show. Hail Nimrod. 
And sweet sucker Nate Starlin also would like to share a personal connection to last week's Khmer Rouge suck, writing, first time message leaving space lizard Nate Starling here from Fresno, California. Just wanted to leave a message and say that this recent Pol Pot episode was my far, uh, was has been my favorite by far. Uh, I've been waiting for it to climb the charts and finally it became a Monday suck. Uh, Hail Nimrod. I wanted to let you, Dan, I wanted to let you, Dan, and all the Times Up community know that this event in history, like so many others, still affects many individuals, individuals to this day. My best friend's older brother's wife is a child of some Cambodian natives who survived and escaped the genocide and made it to the States. For privacy reasons, I will not mention my friend's nor his wife's names. She was born here in the States after her parents made it here safely. Their journey to come here was not one of choice. They had to escape plain and simple. It was that or die. Her mother and father had already had three and f- three to four children. According to her father, they all died of either malnourishment or murder. Her mother and father fought back in the Cambodian jungle. They were tracked down and fired upon by communist forces. They obtained firearms, got into a firefight with the Khmer Rouge, had to kill them to survive. It is completely otherworldly for me to even think about a poor husband and wife side by side shooting communists in the Cambodian jungle to stay alive, but that's what happened. They eventually made it to the States, had more children, my friend's wife being one of them. She has said that the events changed her parents forever. They are kind, gentle people, but her mother constantly has nightmares from PTSD. She also has uh, what seems to be moments of what feels like schizophrenia, where she will hide under her bed or excuse me, or hide in her closet thinking that the communist regime is coming to get her all over again. Like I said, I have never and will never ask her about it unless she directly brings a topic up. I just thought I'd tell you space lizards and time suckers a, a small portion of her parents' story. I know it's not a lot, but it's all I know of the event. Just know that things like this happened over four decades ago and they severely affect lives still today. It goes without saying that Pol Pot was a huge piece of shit and deserves the idiotic title we have so pricely, we have so precisely given him. Hail Nimrod and have a wonderful week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, Nate, man. I bet you has PTSD. And that poor country, I, I hope they have nothing but good times coming, uh, you know, in their cultural future. And finally, kick-ass meat sack, Ms. Cooper sends me a message that made me feel really good. She wrote, Daniel the Manual. I apologize for how lame that name is. I'm a high school teacher. I'm assuming my job wouldn't appreciate me calling you the suck lord or cult leader or motherfucking mushmouth, just to name a few. I know, I know. It's crazy to think that even in 2020, parents refuse to believe their kids can say things like fuck, not their precious baby. Anyway, I'm reaching out to let you know how profound and uplifting the intro to the Brothers Grimm suck was for me. I'm a huge fan, so as soon as I heard that they were the topic, I knew I had to listen as soon as possible. With that, I've gotten several of my students to join the Cult of the Curious but it's still not enough to prove to them that learning is fun. So to remedy this, I'm using your intro of That Suck in a lecture tomorrow for my Gifted Accelerated classes. The students are working on a hero's journey project in which they create a visual representation of their own hero's journey. I find it very important for my students to know that what they do and say matters. Mostly uh, also that, that they learn that they have a story to tell that is most certainly worth a listen. I feel confident that your intro will light the fire they need just like it did for me yesterday as I listened to that episode. In summation, thank you for all that you and your Time Stuck crew do for us meat sacks. Keep sucking the truth because I have over a hundred mini meat sacks who need truth. Oh, and I'm going to your stand-up show in late April when you come to Atlanta. Gonna save up every penny in my teacher budget to be sure that in addition to my ticket, I get a strong drink, a good laugh, and and an inappropriate t-shirt that I can never wear to work. And one last thing, I wish you and Lindsay... I wish that Lindsay and I were best bros. Oh my God, hilarious. She's the fucking best. You're okay too. (laughs) Forever learner and always curious, Ms. Cooper. 
the little hippie teacher with green hair that curses in her lectures. Well, thank you, uh, Ms. Cooper. I hope you uh, are right. I hope I can inspire some students to tell some of their stories. I'm honored that it inspired you. Yes, we all have stories to tell. I have so much respect for good teachers. You're so important to the world. You are the stewards and shepherds of our future, nurturing the minds that will soon rule the world. Hail Nimrod to you. I'll see you soon in Atlanta. And that's all for this week. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, Meat Sacks. Don't kick off a year and a half uh, long arm standoff with federal agents because you refuse to go to court. And keep on fucking sucking. You have to go to court right now. No, I don't. You have that court date. You. No, I don't. They can come get me. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.